0: Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and
1: Water Podcast Network.
2: Happy New Year! Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers, the M stands for Manbat, one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is my co host and bat cousin, Paul Keane. What's new, Paul? Hey, Sean, I'm doing great. But, you
3: know, right after we're done recording, I have to drive our great bat uncles, Michael Ephraim and the other Michael, home. It seems that these British bat uncles have had a little too much liquid refreshment at the New Year's reunion.
2: How about you? I am well, but I have to get in contact with our bat nephews, Colin and Robert. In January, my partner and I are going to the Isle of a Thousand Thrills, and I need to see if they will house it for us. <laughs> we are also super excited this month because we have not one, but two guests to talk about batman family number 13 including our first repeat guest first please welcome back cousin tim price from the right on network hey tim hey guys how are you doing thanks for having me on the show
0: great to have you tim i'm glad i could make it i was getting a little nervous because uncle george's directions to the reunion were horrible (laughs) but but i'm here i thought the phone actually came through for a change so i'm okay but i i'm here and i brought my seven layer jello which which from my mom's recipe is really, really good. I normally I bring my macaroni and cheese, homemade macaroni and cheese, but I know how territorial Aunt Beverly gets, so I decided not to step on her toes this time.
2: <laughs> There's always room for Jello, and a welcome back to our bat buddy, the leader of the 13th dimension, Dan Greenfield. Dan. Can you top what Tim brought?
1: Well, no, because I love homemade mac and cheese, but I brought dessert. I brought, I brought moon pies. Mm. Yeah, there you go. There's always room for moon pies too. (laughs) There is always room for, who doesn't love moon pies? Look, moon pies and A&W cream awesome.
0: (laughs) Hey, wait, moon pies fits something in in this
2: issue too. That's very clever. Oh, very clever. Paul, why don't you remind our listeners what our show is all about? Our show is
3: about food at reunions. No, (laughs) Batman's Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 78. And then it rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing on as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon Man Bat, and even the Odd Man and Red Tornado. Anyway, both of your hosts collected and read these comics when they came out, and they are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman Family reunion.
2: Tim, we heard Dan's story with Batman Family back in Episode 9, but we would love to hear yours. So before we get started on this issue, tell us about your relationship to the Batman Family. How did you get into the book, and who's your favorite member? Oh sure, be glad to. I didn't
0: come across Batman Family very often back in the day when it was on the stands. It was actually quite a bit before I was collecting comics regularly, at least new comics. I had these the stash of free older comics in my basement that we got from a neighbor who dumpster dove ones where the top third was taken off of the cover and yeah. I read I read thousands of those and so Those were great fun. But, you know, there's only so much Archie you can take. And there was a lot of
3: Archie. Did you have a lot of Richie Rich, too? too?
0: (laughs) I did. Oddly enough, there was not a lot of Richie Rich. Because, you know, see, the thing is, those are the ones that got returned. Obviously, Richie Rich was being bought <laughs> Must it be was it. sell it <laughs> <laughs> i had those older comics and i'd also read treasuries and vacation comics you know so had things like that but somewhere along the way i did get batman family number eight with cat girl which was fantastic and blew my mind for seeing cat girls like who the heck is this and then the joker's daughter and repeat the previous question so <laughs> that was just fantastic um uh, <laughs> And then later I did get number 14, which featured that Batwoman cover, Mm -hmm, which is mm going to be coming up soon. That was a pretty wild and creepy story along the way a little bit there. So those were really like the two issues I'd ever had pretty much right off the stand. They're both long gone. Unfortunately, I've had other things happen in my life and they were way before I got back into my collecting as, as a high school and college student, etc. But, you know, I still had a soft spot for the Batman family. I liked the concept. I was, those two stories I have, I have fond memories of and getting to discover it with you guys on this show has been fantastic. So, you know, reading along on DCU Infinite has been a great thing. So I'm very, very happy that I can follow along and see all the fun and wackiness that I expect from this era of the Batman family. As for my Favorite member of the family, well, I am a co-host of the Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast on WON, and so I have to say that my favorite Batman family member is Batgirl, all three of them. Actually, I should say three and
2: counting, because you yeah. never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. Okay, we are going to talk about Batman Family number 13. Uh, the cover date is September 1977. The release date was June 23rd, 1977. It's a 48-page count with a cover price of 60 cents and there is one mega story included. Uh the cover artist is Jim Aparo and what do you guys Woo! think of this cover? what's not to like
1: <laughs> yeah jim Aparo with batgirl and robin and man bat and the outsider with a with a melting manhattan <laughs> behind it i don't think i have to say anything more than that do i
3: no it's fantastic
1: i can say more about it, no, <laughs> go for it.
0: No, i have a huge jim Aparo fan which if you've been listening to my other show i'll just keep on plugging my shows okay that's fine right yeah, uh,
3: on
0: <laughs> um, the outcasters where we cover batman and the outsider from the original 1980 series written by, by W. Barr, and uh, the first artist was Jim Aparo, and oh, we are huge fans of Jim Aparo in that show. Loving his covers. I love his artwork all the way up, and this is just amazing. The, the outsider looks fierce and powerful as he's holding up our two heroes by their capes. It's odd that they look great, even though they're obviously unconscious and in distress. Like, their costumes look great, It's not a good look for them, but they're drawn well. The man bat coming up from behind. Oh my gosh. It is just a spot on man bat. His face and his, his fierce look there and the grimacing mouth open. As he's flying in towards the rescue. That's a fantastic man bat. I don't think we've seen many man bat by Jim Apero. And so this is really just knocking out of the park, but yeah. And the crazy skyscraper and candles and the, (laughs) background oh we're gonna talk about that when we get this is yeah exactly and yeah not to spoil i think but because the main opponent in this one is the outsider yeah that's why i wanted to be on this episode because (laughs) you know Batman and the outsiders and we did cover on our show dc comics presents number 83 earlier this year featuring the outsider i also read whatever dcu infinite had of the outsider pre pre-Carsis. i tried to read those issues so i got at least a little more of him taste from him there as well But it's like, yeah, I
3: couldn't pass up a chance to do Batman Family on The Outsider. Sean, you got to like it because Man Bat's coming on so strong.
2: Yeah, so I'm sure I've alluded to this 12,000 times in the past. This is my absolute favorite issue of Batman Family. I wish they would have done things like this more often where all of them teamed up. I love it. The great thing about this cover, no boxes. Everyone's together on, on the main image. I love it. And I've talked before. I always love it when. You see the heroes' costumes other than how they're normally presented. So here they're like rips, like the 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 outfits have rips in them, which I always thought was fascinating. I'm like, oh wow, it's battle damage. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to, I don't like that the you could be in the Superman movies down in the corner, but every comic had that. It's not that intrusive. It's not at the top. It's not like those horrible Marvel covers where like you could win a bike. (laughs) (laughs) And this probably is my favorite cover also of the. Batman family.
1: You know, you mentioned the little Superman movie ad. I love that it's on the
2: cover. Now, at the
1: time, if I'd noticed it, it would have maybe offended my sense of aesthetics. But I look at it now, and it dates the comic in a really mm. good way. Mm. You know, in a really interesting way. I mean, you, as you said before, this came out in the summer of 1977. So the movie is still almost a year and a half away. But it gives you that, and not to jump ahead, we, you know, we'll come back to this later. But it does give you that sense of anticipation that I do appreciate now knowing what came after fair
3: enough so i have a question for all three of you guys there's something about this issue that is different from all the issues that have preceded it it's, it's
1: the first one that only has the, the one story
3: well that's true but that's not what i'm referring to oh, okay. it is the first one where batman family is now sort of monthly
4: oh, uh, oh, it, it interesting. is it is
3: that crazy eight times uh, a year it's monthly except for May, August, November and February if you check out your oh, NDCs, nice. yeah. This is showing that it's improving in sales, I think as they're increasing the frequency. That is yeah, that is, re- yeah, that that is really, is really cool. great. And yeah, it is.
1: A, it is, it was an indicator. They would go from 6 to 8 to 12. And so that is impressive, especially when you consider that it was a giant too. So it was a little bit Yeah, more I was expensive. going to also say just that it was the first time I think we've had the
0: team up of these three heroes in a single story ever so it's yeah. like there's a lot of yeah. big things oh, happening in stuff. this issue Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. the return of the outsider is also not a trivial thing I'll also b- about the corner thing real quick I also like the fact that the outsider's foot is on top of I do the too because <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah.
4: laughs>
3: it's almost like he's breaking the fourth wall himself a little bit uh, that's probably Bob Rosakis in the production room cutting around his, <laughs> his yeah. to make sure that it pastes up properly. Nice. <laughs> That's our man, Bob, doing it all. So we're going to post the image of the cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Sean, can you please remind our listeners where that
2: website is? It is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now let's jump into the story. But first, we do want to let our listeners know that since this is a single mega story told in four chapters, that we're going to be taking one chapter at a time with our regular segments slotted in between each of the chapters. So the credits for the issue are as follows. The Man Who Melted Manhattan, starring Robin, Batgirl, and Man Bat versus The Outsider. It's a 30-page epic written by Bob Rozakis. The penciler is Don Newton and Marshall Rogers. And the anchor is Bob Wycheck. And this was later reprinted in my beloved Best of DC Digest, number 51, from 1984. The Batgirl Bronze Age Omnibus, volume 2, hardcover, 2019. And Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus, hardcover, from 2020. Chapter 1. The Dynamite Duo in Death Derby at Dawn. After a beautifully drawn recap telling us that Babs and Dick are magic biking their way to NYC, we see them on a collision course with Death, and each other. Robin manages to avert near-disaster by gaining just a bit of control over his handlebars, but when Batgirl tries the same trick, it drives her up the wall. Or rather, the Mystic Motorcycle does. Another game of Chopper Chicken, this time going vertical, ends with Robin about to crash through a window, but actually just bouncing off of it. Luckily, R&B discover that even though these Doom bikes won't let other people get close to them, the two of them can get close to each other. Batgirl manages to grab Robin's utility belt and then pass it off to him so that he can acid his way off of his bike. After a bit of the old Steed and Peel, Robin frees Batgirl and they compare notes. The main one being that all through their mad rush about town, they kept seeing images of Alfred Pennyworth, the origin of Batman's <laughs> butler. Oh, sorry for that advertisement, but. HBO Max is now a sponsor of the show, and that's how we have to refer to him from now on. <laughs> what did you guys think about this chapter? Let's start with you, Dan. Well,
1: I, I think it's a thrill a minute, and I said that so I could get blurred whenever they uh, reprint the story the next time. A thrill a minute. <laughs> no, it's great. It's all plot, carrying over from the previous issue, this wild bike chase through through Manhattan, up and down and all the craziness. And of course, since we already know that it's the outsider who's behind it all, it doesn't have the, the mystery... You know, from the reader's perspective, but since we do know what the, re- the outsider is capable of, it's fun to watch Batgirl and Robin being put through their paces very much in the same way that Batman and Robin were back in the 60s.
0: How about you, Tim? Oh, this, this chapter is a lot of fun. Action adventure. I had a great time with it. I completely agree with Dan was saying. Things that jump out at me, though, is that when it comes to them getting themselves free with the belts, I Don't quite think that it should work. Uh, Oh, no, not at all. How is is she going to get her handlebar close enough to Robin's belt? (laughs) Just getting it close enough, I don't see how that works with the two motorcycles. But I will give them mad props for the fact that when she has to throw it back to him, Robin catches it on his pinky finger (laughs) and then can switch it to his hand to get just the acid capsule out of the thing. Personally, if it had been me, that thing would have been spilling all over the place. There'd be batarangs and uh, (laughs) lasers and uh, shark repellent spray (laughs) all over the streets. None of that would have worked. It shows how amazing Robin is that he could get it loose from that. It was just fun, awesome stuff. And I really liked and the artwork and the depiction of Babs and Dick both look great. And yeah. on that last page of the chapter, they both look really great. I will admit, I only noticed Alfred's face in the images close
3: to the end of the chapter and then had to kind
0: of like re skim it again to see the rest of them. Did the rest of you
3: catch them right away? Or- I remember they were there. So it's not a fair. Comment because I was looking for him.
2: I'm with Tim. I remember like years, decades ago, reading this. I didn't notice that was Alfred until the end and then went back. I, I clearly remember that from when I was a kid. Yeah.
3: Nice. What did you think, Paul? I love their going on their motorcycles. Let's say they're going 60, 70 miles an hour and they're just having a conversation, right? As they're approaching. (laughs) When I was a kid, I remember, I know that I had not read the outsider stories until they were in Batman Family, right? So I'm like, what is this stuff going on with bikes bouncing off of windows and candles on buildings? I was like, what the heck is this? But I want to know more. I want to keep reading, that's for sure. And the art, fantastic. This is young Don Newton. This is great.
1: And the page seven in that the sequence of what of the two bikes, or, as Robin tries to catch up to background, just the framing yeah. of that entire page is just great Don Newton work. And, and it's, such a, it's such an exciting layout. The thing about them throwing the bikes back and forth, and as I was rereading it, because I didn't remember all of the details of uh, all of the story beats, but what I love about that is just the comic bookiness of it all. It's not something that would ever be shown in a comic book today. A mainstream Batman comic would never get, you know, first off, this kind of thing wouldn't happen, but also just the complete zaniness of catching it on the pinky as you pointed (laughs) out. This is the part of the Bronze Age that I love is that there was still some Silver Age DNA in there. And of course, the outsider brings that out. But just all of the bizarre stuff that goes on here that shouldn't is what makes it fun, even if it's supposed to be quote-unquote, down-to-earth type of comic characters who have no powers. Yeah.
3: And, you know, let's give props to Bob Rosakis, too, because he's putting the dynamite duo in a position, again, for teamwork, but also because they have to jump on the one book in a position for flirting, too, so he knows what he's doing there. You got to give props to Bat Cousin Bob.
2: So Bat Cousins, you're listening to this right after New Year's, and I have to apologize to you because if you are playing the Batman family drinking game and you take a shot every time I say beautiful, fantastic, or great, you are going to (laughs) be wasted by the end. I I tend to rely on those superlatives. And I think every page I literally could say that I cannot begin to tell you how much I love this issue. And I actually hadn't thought about like the discussion between the two of them on the bikes. But yeah, that kind of probably couldn't happen over the roar of the city and the roar of the bikes. You know, some of it, you could kind of say that the outsider is like, playing with them toying with them so anything like that was allowed to happen maybe that was Alfred's influence so I'm gonna no prize that this far down the line we know story is most important and the reasons why kind of don't matter and I'm here for that I'm along the ride I literally could talk about every single page I won't but on page five I just love when Robin lands on the pavement his back wheel lands and then like the bike goes forward and just the shot of the cop from the back saying, you know, I used to be a police, a motorcycle officer. And then like Robin's cycle zooms away. I just love that. And then the panel below it where it's like a close up of his face and you see back in the distance
4: rooming
2: up towards him. Oh my God. I just, I just love it.
3: Well, I mean, Newton does a great job of the hair flowing in the wind and, mm-hmm. and on the page that Dan mentioned, page seven, where his hair is flowing and, and then he jumps over and his cape is up in the air. Just terrific art.
2: I talked earlier about costumes and maybe I'm wrong, but it's definitely the first time I ever saw like the inside of Robin's belt. Batman's belt was always drawn with compartments. Hmm. So you, you could understand where all of his gadgets were but Robbins was always seen as just like a solid piece but here you see like the little pockets inside oh my god I love that
1: yeah but I see I don't know if that was written into the script or if that was something that Newton because Newton was also a big fanboy too I mean he came up into into comics through the fanzine ranks and what have you but if you remember back in what was it 68 I think Batman number 203 you have that famous secrets of the Batcave 1968 where you've got the cutaway of the Batcave and it was later reprinted in Batman treasury edition c37 maybe well in that there's cutaways of robin's utility belt and that's where you see that he's got the little mm. folds inside that the pouches are inside the belt as opposed to on the outside. And so when you see it drawn here, that's exactly how it was drawn in that particular cutaway. I'm fairly certain it's either Rosakis or, uh, or Don Newton use that as their model.
3: Now that we talk about it, I can't not see it. It's all over that page. It's uh, the top panel, Batgirl, yeah. she's got it in her hand. You can see the pockets on the inside. When Robin really catches cool. it with a pinky, you see the, a couple of them and mm-hmm. it's just big at the bottom. Very cool. So I think we're all in agreement. Chapter one was awesome. Any other comments about chapter one before we move on to a first break segment? The one thing I wanted to say is on page five, I also really want to
0: call out that I love the sound effects that they put into this here, Mm. where Batman, where Rob, sorry, why is Batman slipping into this issue? He's not here. (laughs) (laughs) Why do we keep talking about him like he's he's not here? Robin bounces off the window and there's a sprong. sprong. It's like, that's fantastic. And then when he lands on the ground, thump, thump. It's really great and his away Ta-choom! It's like there's some pretty stellar sound effects. I, I normally would credit this with a penciler, but I don't see a penciler credit in Mike's Amazing World for this issue. So I'm not sure if we really have a separate penciler here or if the artists themselves are doing it. I don't know if you guys know any better on that point.
3: I don't know. You're right, there's not a credit on the Mike's Amazing World, and there's yeah. also not one in the book for the letterer. Could have been the artist, could have mm-hmm. been Newton and uh, Marshall Rogers. I did have a question about this issue as well. Is this the first time that a story has carried
1: over from the previous issue in Batman Family? As far as being a, like a direct mm-hmm. cliffhanger from yes. the
3: previous? Uh, might be a, from the a cliffhanger perspective. Now you're going to make me get out all my issues there.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, because between issues eight and nine, you had the cat girl and then oh, in, true. Uh, issue nine, you've got the rest of the and which were references there was a loose continuity to the Batgirl and Robin yeah. stories so there definitely was there, there were threads and in this case as far as like being an exactly a cliffhanger that I don't
4: think is and I gets. think
2: even that cliffhanger I think it's like a yes and a no because certainly the issue before this number 12 that Robin story is done mm-hmm. completely done and then it's just like that page or two that almost mm-hmm. more Right. sets up this story for me a cliffhanger is you have a story and oh my gosh something's gonna right. happen because of what happened in that story before and we need to conclude it in another right. issue it kind of depends on what your definition of cliffhanger is because mm-hmm. it's definitely right. continued but the way it was in the story before that robin story was done he yeah, drops off Lori. Sure. he gets back he gets the car. Co- yeah. so it almost is end credit scene <laughs> in a way mm-hmm.
0: And I kind of feel like it is. My reasoning is because we definitely had a continued next issue at the end of last issue.
3: That's true. That might have been the first
0: one. Right. And this kind of feeling into that serial storytelling mm-hmm. yep. thing yeah. of, yeah, sure, the story wraps up. But we're going to have this little thing at the end that you have to come back to next issue to see how it resolves. And yeah. Marvel was very famous for this in the Incredible Hulk storylines in the back of Ted to astonish i was following them with the make ours marvel podcast for a while and they did that so no story ever really no issue ever finished a story it was you finish a story but like the last two three pages we setting up the next issue so it's this soap opera serialness to it and that's what this one felt like it was starting to dip its toe into we'll see if it continues past uh, these few issues but i i got a kick out of it to see that happen here
3: no argument yeah all right let's move on to the bat timeline so in this segment we're going to take a look at the other titles that were published this month what the rest of the batman family was doing at that time and thanks as always to mike's amazing world of dc comics a fabulous website we are in june 1977 for those of you keeping track sean and i are going to cover the bat books this month and then we'll ask our guests too to pull some other titles that they're interested in start off with batman number 291 uh, and this is Chapter One of that strange death of the Batman that Sean and I we talked about a couple of months ago. It's got a great apparel cover with uh, inside art by John Colman. and it's just a great storyline. But before we move off the Batman title, we also have Batman number 122 and 123 pizza hut reprints so i gotta pause here did any of you guys get these comics at pizza hut negative i'm I'm afraid not that kills
2: me that kills me i would have loved it in this time 1977 i don't remember there being pizza huts around me so i grew up in spring grove pennsylvania which is close to york or hanover about an hour from harrisburg i don't remember pizza huts coming to our area until maybe like the 80s you can research this because I always remember the centipede machine. So whenever centipede came out, it would have had to have been after that, because that's the first time I ever played centipede. Was that a Pizza Hut? The first time I went to Pizza Hut. You remember the weirdest thing, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> so at this time, I don't remember Pizza Hut at all.
3: Yeah, I think I had one. But then when I realized that there's also two Wonder Womans and two Supermans, as well as to these two Batmans. So uh, uh fascinating little Tidbit from the 1977 time frame. Dan, I interrupted you.
1: No, 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 not at all. I was just going to say I grew up in New Jersey, and y- y- you didn't go to Pizza Hut. That's it's just, <laughs> just you grew up in New Jersey. You just went to the local pizza parlor, and that's what you did. I don't. I didn't actually eat in a Pizza Hut until I was a senior in high school. There's no way I would have even been aware that Pizza Hut had just because I wasn't yeah. exposed to it.
0: I was in the Chicago area myself, and pretty much the same thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Okay, the next issue is Brave and the Bold number 136 starring Batman and Green Arrow and the Metal Men. It's a cool cover. One of the Metal Men is wrapped around Green Arrow and Batman is swinging in to try to rescue him. I only got the occasional Brave and the Bold story, but They weren't often continued from one issue to to the next, right? Because of the different stars?
3: Not often, but once in a while, but not very often, yeah.
1: It it was something
3: they did maybe once a year or
1: so. And there was always a back and forth in the letters about Brave and the Bold, about whether they would have more continued Mm -hmm. stories or not. So occasionally it would happen, but it was by no means a regular thing.
3: One of my favorites of the month is the next, the DC special series number one, the five-star superhero spectacular This comic book has Batman versus Cobra, plus a great Flash story, How to Prevent a Flash, as well as Green Lantern, Aquaman, and the Atom. I mean, you cannot go wrong. And what a cover by Neil Adams, Mm
4: -hmm. where
3: the five heroes are jumping out of some explosion or something. I had not read any Cobra, but boy, when you read that story uh, with Michael Netzer, I think was the artist on that. Let me check that. Yeah, that's who it is. Just terrific book. I don't know. If, did you guys have that one?
1: I didn't get it when it came out, but I ultimately got it. And it, and it, you're right. It's, it's just a fun comic to have. And I can't recall whether it was a one they did to the burn inventory or whether they were using it as a quasi-tryout book. There is there is a story behind it. I don't recall all the particulars. Yeah,
3: something like, like that Flash story has, was something special about it. I don't remember what it was. And the
1: Batman-Cobra story was, I think, supposed to appear in Cobra right. before it got And then it got canceled. So they,
2: I think there was something right, about right, that. Too. Right.
3: They were wrapping up the Cobra story. So go ahead, Sean.
2: I could cut and paste exactly what Dan said. Like, I didn't have it at the time. I love it now. It's beautiful cover. All of that. The next one is Detective Comics number 472 and that of course is englehart and rogers and it's batman versus hugo strange i Mm. love that entire run we've talked about i have it in strange apparitions the the trade paperback it's just beautiful and i forgot didn't realize that that was running at the same time as batman family to me they're so far apart in history and it was running concurrently and batman
3: family is
2: outselling it yeah. Obviously, I love Batman Family. But yeah, the fact that that's outselling that story and that beautiful art. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't get it.
3: Yeah. Next one up is Justice League of America, number 146. Englehart and Dylan, of course, with Justice League versus the Construct. That's another giant size issue.
0: I'll also add that I read that story for the first time this year. I've been reading all of JLA volume one for mm-hmm. this year, like one a day. And it's been a fun reading project. So I got to read that particular story this year that was just great but also a couple issues before blew my mind because that's where Englehart drops the idea that oh yeah the DC heroes actually have their stories take place in the actual year that they're published in they just age differently and they actually say that
2: in the comic and that blew my mind (laughs) 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 Engelhart. what are you thinking buddy (laughs) and in terms of the timeline super friends nothing teen titans nothing world's finest comics nothing bat family appearances in my script paul says technically old guy earth 2 dick grayson does have a cameo in all-star comics number 68 yes that counts he is a member of the Batman family. Yes, that's counting. All-Star 68 with Dick Grayson of Earth 2. Tim and Dan, what else was on your poll list for the newsstand that month? Let's start with Dan.
1: Well, all I can tell you, I am sitting here biting my tongue about Engelhardt and Rogers, because if given the opportunity and having had the opportunity and certainly at the website, I have probably written as much about that story as anything else. I actually do consider it that storyline to be the best batman story of all time i think it is the definitive batman story so i would love to go on another 90 minute tangent just
2: to talk about we're that, known for our four-hour shows here so
1: yeah yeah I don't, I don't yeah i don't i don't want to do that as much as it pains me but it really it really was a magical time between that and bat i mean i i didn't really care for much of what was going on in batman itself at the time i think it was a fairly fallow period in in, in my opinion but batman family and detective really if that's all you had that's all you needed because you're getting great storytelling very different kinds of storytelling but different storytellings in, in, in the same place so that's, at, at that age I mean all I really w- I would have just had the three books I might have picked up Brave and the Bold but the, the, the three main Batman books are the ones that I would have picked up at the time and I probably wouldn't have looked much more past that How about you Tim? I'm afraid that if I had enough money I would have picked up a
0: lot of things this month uh, <laughs> my, main, my main thing is I'm a huge Spider-Man fan So, I've been collecting Amazing Spider Man since 1980, period. So, (laughs) I have a lot of boxes of Amazing Spider Man. So, yeah, this month, like some good Spider Man books on there. There's an Amazing Spider Man 172, which features the Rocket Racer. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that would have been a take. And you also had a Spider Man annual this month, which is. Just phenomenal! It's a spawn of the Sphinx. It looks like it'll be a character that will be a big part of the Spider-Man history mythos going forward. No, it's, not. it's a one-off <laughs> character that's going to appear. probably never show up again. But hey, i still going to get it,
3: Spider-Man. So I'm going to get it. Before you go on, Tim, I got to stop you on this Spider-Man Annual Number Eleven because I got a little okay. tidbit. Not for the main story, which was great. You know, Bill Mantlo and Don Perlin love it, but the backup. Okay, the backup was entitled Chaos at the Coffee Bean. So of course the coffee bean is like Gabriel's horn for Peter Parker and his (laughs) friends, right? Yes, yes. But if that was not good enough, this story, the backup story was written by some journeyman writer named Scott Edelman, but it has the first published art and first Spider-Man story illustrated by John Romita Jr. So, wow more Spider-Man than his dad and then more than anybody, probably. And uh, this was his first published Spidey story. That does make
2: that issue completely cool. worthwhile picking up, doesn't it? Regarding that issue, when I was looking at the newsstand on Mike's Amazing World, I did think it was so odd because it's not the regular Spider-Man logo. I guess because of the, mm. the picture, because of the illustration, I guess they couldn't really fit that curving logo. You're right. So I like didn't this, notice that. But that's a, that's that's weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a weird logo that I've never ever seen anywhere else before. It's
0: kind of like what they might have done on a Treasury comic. That yeah. bigger, that bigger with that, especially with that diagonal all new that's off to the side. Mm, that I've does seen, look, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's like why I would speak on a Treasury cover. Yeah. So yeah. Pretty great stuff. Keep going, Tim. Well, there's, in continuing more Spider-Man, I have things besides Spider-Man. I'm going to get him out of the way first. There's Marvel team up with Spider-Man and the Human Torch, number 61. Mm. Great thing about this issue, it's drawn by John Byrne and written by some guy named Chris Claremont. I mean, they're probably not going anywhere, (laughs) right? And I know the bad guy is the Super Scroll. I have a soft spot for the Super (laughs) Scroll stories. So yeah, that was an easy buy for me. There's also Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, number 10. So not very long into that run. That's great stuff. Drawn by Sal Passema. I love Sal Passema. Love his art. He is also one of the much later definitive Spider-Man runs of his with J.M. DeMatteis. That story features the white tiger. Hey, hey, can't go wrong with the white tiger. He's an interesting, quirky fan favorite of mine.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, cover by Perez, who was famous for his white tiger and the black and white mags. Right. So, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you probably wanted to do that cover. Mm -hmm. Nice. And there's a Spidey Super Stories
0: this month. Woo! (laughs) Because at that age, I was actually probably right for Spidey Super Stories still. I wouldn't have turned my nose up at them. They're all fun, all ages books back then. So, Absolutely. yeah, lots of good Spider-Man books there. Getting into things besides the big old Spider-Man's like, yes, I've been collecting the Avengers since 1980, also. And we have number 163, the Demi God must die. And they're all fighting Hercules on the cover.
3: So that's gonna be that's a classic tomahawk because you've got a great mm. George Perez cover, <laughs> and you open yeah. up the cover and you get George Tusca.
0: Yeah worse than don you're not wrong i hear you
3: well another favorite coming up
0: is black lightning number four is out Mm, i mm -hmm. did not collect black lightning back in the day but i i thought he was always cool i always thought he was cool so i would have gotten his issue in a heartbeat and i think i'll finish it off with Superboy and the legion of superheroes number 231 mostly because the villains are on the cover and it's the fatal five Mm, mm -hmm. nice so, yeah, I, I think I'm going to take like two bags of comic books out of the store
1: today. <laughs> <laughs> Can I add one to the stack? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, it just occurred to me that there is a, another book out there that has a Batman family connection. It's Freedom Fighters number Ooh. 10
3: with the appearance of Catman. Oh, does Catman count, Sean? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're right. We counted the Joker. We we counted Two-Face, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we counted Two-Face. I guess. Yeah, I mean, and it was his first appearance. Yeah, Yeah, it was his first appearance, I think,
1: since the Silver Age. And then you didn't see him again for about another 30 issues of Batman. But it's just like, as we were just talking, I was like, oh my God, Freedom Fighters number 10 was out.
3: Fair point, fair point. You know, it's funny because I was looking at Freedom Fighters. I couldn't remember which one. We have Batwoman come in and I'm like, no, she's not in this one. That's not a Bat book. So well done, Man. Thank
1: you. I just, just caught that one on, on the warning <laughs> track. I'm
3: glad I gave you plenty of time to find it. <laughs> <laughs> John, how about you? You go first, Paul. All right. So I'm gonna say if you look at adventure comics number 453, this is starring Superboy. This is the first issue because last issue is Aquaman, who's now spun back into his own title. This is probably the first time I noticed that the headliner changed. I'm like, whoa, what is, you know, what's going on? I, I think at the end of the, they said now Aquaman is going to get his own book. And so I think it, it was announced, but I, I think that's kind of a neat thing. I never was a huge super boy by himself in Smallville, you know, with Lana and all that stuff fan, but I did buy those and enjoyed them. The DC special series number two, reprinting the Swamp Thing saga. I bought this one at the time. And at that time, the, Swamp Thing was not really my cup of tea. I didn't buy the rest of them. There were like four or five that reprinted all the Bernie Wrights and Swamp Things. Let's see. Invaders Annual, number one. I have to point that one out because I just got my Invaders Omnibus for Christmas. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to reading it all. I had them and sold them all long ago. I have not read the Invaders for 45 years, but my recollection is always... Enjoying the series, not liking the art so much. I'll probably appreciate it a lot more now. Mr. Miracle 19 is the first non-Kirby issue after its four or five year hiatus. And that, of course, has art. By Marshall Rogers, who's got art in the next chapter here. And then I'll end my choices with, what do you think, Sean? Underdog number 14. I've been picking Underdog a lot. And this one's yet another fun cover. You got Underdog facing a bunch of people and cars and boats swirling around in the air with a strange caption that says, hurricane jitters blows no good. I don't know what that means. I don't get it, but I'll take it. And for good measure, there is Wonder Woman had uh, special guest star, Dr. Midnight. So that's always cool. World War II, Wonder Woman, Dr. Midnight. John, bring us home.
2: The reason I wanted to go last is as you guys are going through, I'm checking off everything I don't have to talk about. And I thought I thought I was going to get out without having to say any of my books because you guys mentioned so many of the ones that were on my list. The ones that you guys didn't mention are The Secret Society of Supervillains, number nine. And the great thing about this, so many people love covers where like the heroes and the villains are coming at each other. This is one of those, but it's really done in a neat way because it's just at a little bit of an angle. Now, I hate math, so I don't know how many degrees off of a turn this is. So you can write in the comments if you care at all. But it's neat because it's not just, you know, left and right coming at each other. It's just a little bit of an angle and it looks fantastic.
0: I'll get my compass out and we'll figure it out.
2: (laughs) My next one, of course, is Shazam number 31. uh, And it's a great cover because Captain Marvel is sitting in a chair there's a five-ton block coming down from the ceiling and breaking (laughs) over his head. Yet (laughs) the chair does not break. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) And Minuteman is busting in. And of course, the last book I'll talk about, which they will cover on Superman Family Matters, is Superman Family. And that's Jimmy Olsen with super electro gloves and boots. And he's kicking Superman in the face. This is maybe one time where I'll allow a boxed cover because in a box at the bottom, all the rest of the Superman family are like looking up at it and like in
4: awe,
1: including Crypto.
2: (laughs) That's a cool.
4: (laughs) Yeah,
1: Crypto's like.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So those are my newsstand picks.
1: Hold on a second. Did none of us actually list? Marble super special with kiss in it. The one that was
3: made with their blood in the ink. No, we did not. I did not get it. I was not a big. (laughs) I didn't get it at the time, but I heard about. (laughs) You should have mentioned it. You're right because that is the one that has their blood in there. Yeah, the classic. I'm glad that you mentioned it, and I'm glad I
0: did not have.
2: I appreciate kiss (laughs) for what they are. You can claim that "I was made for loving you" is not a disco song, and you would be ten thousand percent wrong because it completely is. So it's my favorite song from them and that's about all i know of. I, I i would love to watch uh what kiss meets the phantom of the opera phantom of the phantom of the Par- phantom of the roller no. though it, it was something like that yeah i, I watched that. it on tv as a kid because i loved amusement parks i would love to it's probably on youtube i'll look it up sometime all right and sean the count how many issues does richie rich have this month a record-setting Fifteen.
3: <laughs> wow. Fifteen
2: Richie Riches, which were never returned without their
4: cover.
3: <laughs> oh my God, 15. I think the highest we had before was like 11 or 12. And the, the three number ones, which blew me away as well, which means they
2: can't print enough. Unbelievable. That's big, And I know it was, what, 30, 40 years ago. But still, now, nothing. People don't know who Richie Rich is. Like if I asked my grandkids who Richie Rich is, they would have no idea whatsoever.
3: Yeah, Amazing. Okay, let's move on, guys, to Chapter 2. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here all night, but that's okay. <laughs> chapter 2, and are in this chapter, I will note, is by Marshall Rogers. The rest of the book is Don Newton, but this chapter is Marshall Rogers because it's mainly Man Bat. So, Chapter 2, Twilight of the Sunset Gang. While the Dynamite duo is enjoying breakfast, we switch gears to the struggling Langstrom's luxury New York City apartment, where the couple is watching a news report of Man Bat's adventure with the Ware jaguar from last issue. Kirk laments that he didn't make a penny off of it. Despite Francine worrying that he might turn into the Utu Runku, he heads off on patrol and wouldn't you know it, he runs into the Sunset Gang again, courtesy of his man-batty sense, of course. Some great Marshall Rogers art, as Kirk uses paintings from a museum to block the special moonbeam flashlight that would change him back into the Utu Runku. He defeats the gang and turns around to find an albino with a terrible skin condition. Oh, I mean the outsider. Kirk says that Mr. O can't change him into the were-jaguar since he took the moonbeam flashlight. So the outsider grabs the actual moon. He throws the moon at Kirk and separates the Uturinku from his body and sicks him on Manbat. Conveniently, Mr. O has negated Manbat's ability to fly, so he runs away. He runs straight into the Museum of Natural History where he tries to get the drop on the ut But instead, he gets thrown into the corner of the Atlantis exhibit, donated by Aquaman naturally, and the Uturunku converges on him to slash him to pieces. As Kirk laments he will likely never see Francine again, we come to the end of chapter two. Discuss. Tim, you first. Oh my, the artwork in this chapter is amazing.
0: I love everything about it. The face for Man Bat is expressive and fierce and just inhuman. Just loving it. I'm glad that I didn't get lazy and I took the time to read the previous issue. Otherwise I'd be like, who are these losers? But I'm glad I was here to catch up on that. And it's just interesting that This little bit of a storyline, this is not so much the soap opera continuous thing, but just the subplot from before being carried forward here. I like that this callback. So building some world for Band Bat here in New York, some foes for him. And like, you know, he grabs the uh, plates to block the moonbeam and then like takes out the woman with the flashlight because, you know, killer flashlights. Got to watch out for those with a (laughs) kick to the face. It's really great kick to the face. Oh my gosh. It's just so good. And then we have the the outsider oh, wow. himself who looks creepy as all get out. Yeah, Metamorpho really needs to go see the dermatologist. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> with his purple Speedos. Yes. Can't go wrong. With chalk white skin and purple Speedos. With bumps. <laughs> with bumps. But that image of him reaching up to grab the moon. Thank goodness this is comic books because if this was a movie, you would have busted your special effects budget like you wouldn't believe (laughs) trying to pull that off. But it works in comic books. You just draw it and you're done. And the look on his face. The look on Outsider's face, how his mouth just wide open in fury is just, and his fingers casting shadows on the moon as he's reached up for it. Now it's like, what shenanigans Outsider's actually pulling this off with? I don't know. It looks freaking amazing. The light effects on page 14 with the flash and those sparkles going around. It's, like, yeah. it's great stuff. I'm, I'm trying not to go page by page, but I'm failing. That, that, I'm that, going page by okay. page. Right. So it's just... But there's just so much to love. The fight between the Wear jaguar and man bat, it just comes together really great. The Wear jaguar, I was like, that's a very good look. The spots are consistent, more or less, it feels like. You know, he's just knocking it out of the park. I mean, he just Here he's doing just one chapter in the story. And Marshall Rogers is just pulling out all the stops, knocking it out of the park. That's my, my main thing. It's just the art on this one. It is just so good. Dan, how about you? There's a couple of things
1: that I love in, about this chapter, and you know, the Marshall Rogers was was a phenomenal mm-hmm. talent. And one of the things that I just noticed—the the comic is sitting open as we're talking—is that on this opening mm-hmm. splash page, I never recognized yep. before that you can see Kirk and Francie Langstrom little reflections on the yep. TV screen that yes. I
3: I just like looked down and I never realized it before. So, Tim, are you reading it digitally? Because is, is that in the digital version? I am reading it digitally. Yes, they might. Might even be
0: making it more obvious in the digital mm, version. They do tend to do that with the color touch-ups. Yeah. Some things that are a little bit more subtle in the in the original printed version when they adjust them for digital, they'll enhance them a bit more. So I bet this is coming through a little stronger, even on the digital side. Yeah.
3: That's a great catch, Dan, because I remember when I was mm-hmm. you know, preparing for this, I'm looking at it and at first you like, sometimes, you know, with some of the old books, you look, what's on the opposite page is something bleeding through. It almost looks like something's
1: right. That's what it, I thought maybe I'd put my pizza that I didn't get from pizza hut down on it. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait a minute, what did I just do? And I was like, oh no, that's their faces. I love that touch and how subtle it does come, you know, with the, with the classic newsprint anyway. But also on the following mm-hmm. page, the three panel sequence where he changes to Man Bat in silhouette is also extremely well done. You had mentioned it, Tim, that the kick in the face while flying, I love uh, Roger's line work, but really that the whole moon thing is just so much fun. It doesn't make any sense. You can't explain it. You can't even explain it within the confines of the comic book because you just know that wacky stuff goes on when you're dealing with the outsider. But I also love the way the moon follows him around like the little floating droid on the uh, Millennium Falcon. Of course, this came out a month after Star Wars did, but it was written before
2: it had. So,
3: How about you, Sean? What else is on your list of great things about this, Sean?
2: This is a great episode because literally everything I have on my points, you guys are talking about. Although this is my favorite issue, this may be the episode I talk less because you guys cover everything for me. A couple of things I wanted to point out, and I'm going to repeat it. Yeah, I love the reflection on the TV. It's beautiful. But also, if you'll notice, on the TV report about Mandat, that's not actual video footage. It is a WGYN news artist sketch by Bob Marshall, (laughs) says it right there on the side. I love that. Oh my God, I love that. I saw that detail. The other thing I love, kind of like you were talking about storylines, this does set up a storyline for the future Man Bat issue because Francine gets like a knock at the door, she goes and we don't know who it is, but we, we do eventually find out who it is. You were talking about Man Bat blocking the light with the painting and then like doing the kick in the air. I love that. Now, I would love to see Man Bat in live action. I'm almost positive he would be a villain. We're not gonna get this Man Bat in live action, but I would love it. But imagine aerial martial arts. It would be fantastic. That's kind of what that reminds me of. He's kicking, but he, like, he's not on the ground. Like, he's not leaping up kicking. He's like flying and kicking. Oh my God, I think that would just be fantastic. And in terms of the moon, yeah, like, I don't think for him second that the outsider reached up and took the moon from its orbit. He duplicated it or how, you know, just no, of course, it made it look like he's reaching for the moon. And I think that would look great in live action or animated at all.
1: What I like also is the way it's set up in the previous panel. When you see the yeah. clouds are over the moon, they sort of look like fingers. And then when he reaches back, you see that it is his fingers he grabs it and throws it. But of course, again, whether it's in the script or whether Rogers was smart enough to do it, the way that the, the action plays out, you don't see the moon again. Yeah. So you don't really know, but you know that it's not really the moon. And, and I and I appreciate in the same way that in the first chapter, when they sort of showed the Bat Cycles landing on the side of the building happens off panel because how that actually would happen would be extremely difficult to even draw, let alone film. But you do see in the next panel that they're going up the side of the building. So there's just those tricks of storytelling in comics of, of the things that happen in your mind that you don't actually see on the page and you get little bits of that in here. I mean, Don Newton and Marshall Rogers are two of my absolute favorites, but they really do have very differing styles. Their, their penciling styles very you know, very distinct from one another, and yet you don't feel like, in the way that this story is presented, that it, it still holds together as part of the same story because of the nature of the pacing and the way that the artists are interpreting Bob Rosakis' work. It just melts together. So I, I give huge credit not only to the script, but also to the editor who had to make sure that it all flowed because nobody ever talks about the editor. But it really, I think in in both cases, we're seeing both artists doing their very best
3: work. Well, I don't have anything to add to what all three of you guys said other than one thing. There's one comment that The Outsider makes where he mentions for the first time in print in story, death to the batman family <laughs> so i had to point that out the mm-hmm. bottom of
2: page 14 yes. on
3: the right hand side so we are now official a year in sean
2: in the words of mystery science theater nice we have
3: a title we have a title there you go <laughs> uh, so on that note while we were all waxing marshall rogers car as so to speak uh, i do want to spotlight him in the bat family history this is his last issue of batman family as he has moved on of course to a seminal run on detective with steve englehart as Dan was mentioning before. So my sources included uh, Wikipedia, uh, a couple issues of back issue 51 and 135, and in some article on some unknown website called 13th Dimension or something, which was actually an interview with Steve Engelhart, but it wasn't titled, the one I'm <laughs> referencing wasn't titled, thank you God Steve Engelhart recalls first seeing Marshall Rogers' artwork, which I thought was a great title, Dan. Anyway, Marshall was born in New York in 1950 and originally planned to be an architect. He left college in 1971 without a degree, came home to New York to find out that his parents were moving to Colorado. He decided to stay in New York, and he bounced around with some odd jobs as he tried to get illustration work. To earn a living, he also did illustrations for men's magazines that he describes as, quote, Real, low-grade, schlock, seizo magazines that had illustrations to precede the stories. <laughs> Let's just say none of those illustrations are going to be on the gallery post. This is a family yes. show, after all. <laughs> anyway, he continued showing samples to Marvel and DC. And in 77, his artwork began interesting Marie Severin and Vince Coletta, both of their art directors. Uh, That got me my first job. It wasn't my really the drawing ability, he said, in a 1980 interview in the Comics Journal as much as my design capabilities. So I thought that was interesting. So we're still at the beginning of his career at Batman Family number 13. It's only his 13th published credit. Boy, a lot of 13s going on here. As I mentioned. His big break is starting now in Detective Comics with Steve Englehart and then later Len Wein. During this run, he redesigned Deadshot. He co-created Clayface number three. His last Detective Batman story is only a little more than a year away with one of the stories in number 481, which is the first dollar comic featuring the Batman family. So now, Dan, you interviewed Steve Englehart for your series of articles, so I'll defer to you. But my understanding is that Englehart had written a bunch of these stories ahead of time, as well as his Justice League that was coming out around the same time, And because he was headed off to live in Europe for a while. A quote from your article was, Marshall and Terry would draw something and they'd go in and managing editor Joe Orlando would yell at them and say, this is terrible. This is not what I want. But the cool thing about it is that they didn't change. Marshall, you can see, gets better issue by issue. You can see that a lot. And that's right out. That's a quote from Steve Englehart from your website. And he also references a similar thing happening with George Perez. He saw him getting better on Avengers at the same time, which I think is really neat. That was one of my
1: all-time favorite interviews. And anybody who is interested in Marshall Rogers, it's wonderful to read and, and and in talking to Steve, getting his perspective on what it was like to collaborate with someone that he wasn't really collaborating. He didn't know with those detective issues. It was like he he handed the story in before he left for Europe. And of course, as we know, it was started with Walt Simonson being inked by Alan Milgram, and then two issues in, it flipped to uh, Rogers and, and Austin, I mean, which is an amazing thing to think of Marshall Rogers as upstaging Walt Simonson, but he did in that particular story. And what's uh, uh, amazing about that is exactly like you said with the headline, because I asked Steve, I'm like, what was it like when you first saw the artwork? Because they sent it to him and he saw it overseas. says, "Oh, thank God. You know, Here's someone who understood what I was writing. He says, because you never know. Sometimes, particularly the way the comics were made back then, it was a bit of a crapshoot. And when he saw it, he was just knocked out.
4: Yeah.
3: In back issue number 51, I found that interesting that Engelhart claims the editorial department didn't like his art but they didn't change it so he says he wasn't sure if joe orlando really didn't like it or if he was trying to motivate rogers yeah. and austin even more somehow
1: the upset as i understand it was that because it was it deviated a little too much from what was a typical dc house style more power to them for not only just drawing it that way but for still letting it be published and yep. man oh man uh, you know redraw I mean, his face or anything that, <laughs> yeah but 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 it is amazing that at the by the end of the run the, the book was on its last legs and then ended up getting rescued, as as you well know and have said many times over, Batman Family. But then the funny thing is, is also when you think about Adams and O'Neill on Green Lantern and Green Arrow, they saw that book out to cancellation, too. Yeah, so you have these two incredible, groundbreaking, important stories in comics that just goes to show they were of their time and ahead of their time at, at the same time. Yep. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Did I did I just go into a parallel universe? <laughs>
3: That's okay. We're all family here. But Engelhart liked Marshall Rogers' art well enough. Obviously, as you mentioned, he wanted to keep working with them. They co-created the characters Coyote and Scorpio Rose over at Eclipse Comics. And then Rogers moved to Marvel and started a great six-issue run on Doctor Strange. He wasn't the fastest, so he never had a really long run on any particular title. I do know I really liked his work on the Silver Surfer when it started. That started back up in 1987. That was also written by Engelhart, so I have to believe he requested him. He lasted 12 issues there, and according to back issue 135, he had some personal problems and couldn't maintain the schedule. He did a few GI Joes, the Boohahah Justice League Quarterly, couple issues, a Legends of the Dark Knight art, which of course they could put in inventory. But by the 1990s, his work was pretty infrequent. He and Englehart collaborated one last time on the sequel to their detective run with a six-issue mini series Batman The Dark Detective in 2005. Most of the Batman-related stories are all collected in the hardcover Legends of the Dark Knight by Marshall Rogers. And one favorite item that, personally, that I want to point out was a Batman portfolio that was issued in 1981, which I bought at the time and I still have it. Love to know if any other Bat relatives has it. My money would be on Chris Franklin, but I don't know if any of you guys ever had that. It's about, I don't know, 11 by 17 portfolio, six or eight, I mean, beautiful pieces of art. I do
1: have it. One of the uh, plates I actually have framed. Yeah,
3: I I've been thinking about figuring out. Uh, Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, they're really great stuff. And and, you know, the
1: other thing was interesting about Engelhart and Rogers also. just one last thing is that Engelhardt said that Rogers, one of his regrets in his career is he died young because he wrote a piece, an appreciation piece for the site when 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 it happened. And he basically said he died kind of bitter. He wanted to do more Batman and DC just wasn't that interested. I guess by the time he'd gotten his act together or what have you, there was more of that story that had actually been worked out. And we have run at the site, the third, what Engelhart considered a trilogy. That they had the first run, the second mm. run, and a third run that they actually began work on, and then and then Rogers died, and the third one like there's there's images of uh, Rogers' version of the Riddler, for example, and some some really good mm. stuff there.
3: Right. So yeah, just to wrap it up, as you said, sadly Marshall Rogers died in 2007 at much too young an age of 57, presumably from a heart attack. Apparently, he was alone for several days before someone found him. His output was not as voluminous as some of the others we've profiled. Mike's Amazing World lists him with 132 credits at Marvel, DC, and Eclipse, but his influence, as we've been talking about, was much broader. So I hope our listeners enjoyed taking some time to talk about him. So Sean, I think we're ready for chapter three.
2: All right, chapter three. Batgirl and Robin in The Explosive End of the Dynamite Duo. After breakfasting in Manhattan, perhaps at Tiffany's, B&R go to Gabriel's Horn, the hip and hangout of the Teen Titans in the 1970s, to log into the JLA satellite to get some info on the Outsider's doings. After talking about the Titans for a bit, Robin finally opens up to Batgirl, about he loves her as a friend, a partner, and, in a Luke Skywalker moment, a sister. Before he begins to say that he could love her as a, just then, the Outsider appears on the Jumbotron computer monitor, and then, to the thrill of my heart, I find out it's a massive 3D TV. Oh, wait, no, it's not. The Outsider really is coming out of the screen. The Outsider belts the dynamic duo, not by smacking them around, but by using their own utility belts to strangle them. But he doesn't want them dead. No, 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 not yet. They need to be alive to find out that, due to the rap on his head when he was at Wayne Manor back in Batman Family Number 11, The outsider was able to gain control of Alfred. And look at where we are now. We told you we wanted a real team up and not some dumb party setup. This probably (laughs) wouldn't have even happened if they had been stopping crooks instead of decorating for a party. By the way, it says a lot about the stars of this book and how far they are in their careers. That learning that Man-Bat is not only dead, but is now trapped in the body of a were-jaguar who is about to kill them, Doesn't really seem to be a surprise to either one of them. (laughs) On his way out the door, the outsider talks about who is next on his death docket. And Bat-Cousins have to know that I respect anyone who knows how to sling some alliteration like that. Dan, what did you think of chapter three?
1: Man, to me, it all comes down to the page, which is page 18. And it is to me, one of the most important, most influential pages in Robin and Batgirl history. As we all know, Batgirl and Robin had been shown clearly at the time, pre-crisis, different ages she was noticeably and significantly older than he was probably by about eight to ten years but they had that spark from the very first issue the will they or won't they that whole idea of robin and as potential pairing that's really when this began and the debate that had gone into you know throughout the letters column up to this point about should they or shouldn't, not just will they or won't they but should they or shouldn't they was fascinating. I had the opportunity to interview Bob Rosakis years ago about this issue and about his run on Batman Family and this scene in particular in the relationship and he talked about it and basically in a sense in word for word what he told for me is much in Robin's dialogue where he basically outlines the fact that this is more of a crush situation Batgirl really wouldn't be interested in him and he sort of acknowledges that and that's also Rosakis' acknowledging to the readers that this really shouldn't happen, but you can understand why Robin would feel that way. And again, the great mystery remains, what does Batgirl think? We still don't know. And we don't know if she's pretending that she's asleep. We don't know if she's herb. None of it. It's so that will they or would they and should they or shouldn't they continue. But you do get the closest thing we're ever going to get to a button on it at the time. Because they really kind of moved on from that after this. Mm-hmm. They pretty much had dealt with that part of the issue. And then both of their careers moved on. And really, once, of course, Detective rolled around, they really weren't appearing at all anyway. So it, in a weird way, and, and pardon the pun here, the climax of their relationship kind of happens on this page in a very artful, memorable, and I think really a sweet way. This is why I'm here tonight, guys. I have to say, I really wanted to talk about this issue because of how important it was to the development of Robin and Batgirl as characters at the time and what it ultimately meant for them for decades later to the point where clearly DC felt there's, they had such a great thing going that they decided to make them the great, star-crossed lovers of DC Comics, and I still am waiting for the issue to come down, and I'm convinced that it's coming, that they're going to get married. That is the next big marriage stunt at DC, and if they're setting it up for it. I don't know. It's going to happen one of these days. I just got a
3: hunch. I can't say it any better, Dan. Sorry if I took the
1: air out of the room. It's just, this I've been waiting for this moment. No. That was fantastic.
3: I think it was so artfully done with Babs lying there, and like you said, we do not know whether she's really asleep or not. These stories are great fun. We've said it many times, Sean and I, you just got to go with it sometime. The whole concept of the outsider fits in with the Island of a Thousand Thrills, fits in with all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. It doesn't make a lick of sense. You got wear jaguars, you got all kinds of stuff going on, right? And yet the heart of the book is right here in this scene. And that's what makes it special. And at the end of the day, that's really what makes it memorable. And I mean, the art is beautiful. Rosakis is hitting on all cylinders. Just a
2: great, great great scene
3: i said i didn't have anything to say and then i went on for two minutes so
4: sorry
2: (laughs) would you like to point out anything in particular
3: well
0: first off i gotta get my silly comment out of the way because which i feel bad about with the dan's wonderful dissertation on this page 18 you could say this is the page that launched a thousand shippers
1: (laughs) well said nicely done i like it good
0: yeah it says it all it's funny because it's almost a Batgirl crossover with Teen Titans since she's in their headquarters. Her name of Batgirl as being that conscious choice, as opposed to her being Batwoman, always makes me want her to be part of the Teen Titans, even though it's like in this era, she's not the right age.
3: I do love that they go to Gabriel's Horn. Yeah. Although it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Isn't Gabriel's Horn out on Long Island? It's like an hour and a half out of their way. Yeah.
1: I mean, obviously, Rosakis was doing it because he wrote both times. Yeah. But it was also the one way that they, they make it work is that he says, oh, well, we've got to get hooked into the, the JLA satellite. Yeah. So that gives them the excuse to go an hour out of the city. Yeah. But yeah, that wasn't lost on me. Like, they have to go all the way out to <laughs> Farmingdale?
0: Give me a break. Well, they drive between Hudson University and Washington, D.C. like every that's, other that's issue anyway. Too. <laughs> that's
1: that's like, true, <laughs> too. Which, which is, is kind this of funny. Is because is Well, what I like, because Rosakis is from Long Island. I mean, this yeah. is that's his stomping grounds. Ah, mm-hmm. And he based Hudson University on Hofstra. Mm-hmm. University out on the mm-hmm. island. And that's right. why you have the Unispan and back at what episode five or six yeah. or whatever. Or With issue, the Joker's daughter was, about it, yeah. But the funny thing about Hudson University is I always see it as upstate because Hudson River is <laughs> <laughs> nowhere near Farming Channel <laughs> <laughs> nowhere near Hostra. And no Carthage is an upstate name because you have Ithaca and Rome, New York, and all these others. So I always took exception to the idea that it was out on the island, but it, it works because it's fun because it's Bob Razakus. If I were in the situation, I would have written a lot of stuff that Happened in my hometown,
2: too. <laughs> I actually Googled the locations because I was so afraid I was going to misspeak about the distance. So, yeah, oh, yeah. So thank you. I'm man, no good we have someone who knows. So I agree, obviously, with everything everyone said. One thing I think is interesting is, so Robin mentions the Titans, and at this point, it's they're up to issue 50, but Titans would only last until issue 53, which is a shame for me. So they're at the Teen Titans headquarters, and you see in panel two on page 17, you have, like, statues of people. In the... But they have Superman. So I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that it's not just the mentor characters. Appar- apparently, they have, like, a whole big... Mm -hmm. lineup of other heroes to aspire to be (laughs) i did like that i thought that was very very nice very touching then you wonder who else they have statues up in there (laughs) yeah really i would assume all the justice league which at this point is a lot of characters right (laughs) there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that dead man has a statue there and art wise it's funny we haven't really talked about the art in this chapter versus the one before but i do want to point out on page 20 when you have the outsider and he's leaning in, and it's all dark. Yeah. There's a really nice, I'll say a serpent, which I yeah. don't know. I mean, oh, it looks Batman it. in the bat- mm-hmm. like I think no, Batman.
3: Now, this is great. This whole thing, like a good villain, the outsider walks away before seeing that they're actually dead <laughs> in, at the end of the chapter. <laughs> I think it's time now. Let's move on to the bat branding segment where we're gonna talk about the non story
2: pages. So, Sean, kick us off. We are gonna start off with, we talked about it, it's featured on the cover. The Great Superman Movie Contest. This was a DC house ad for very many, several months. In the issue, it's across from the Man Bat story, page 12. I'm assuming that's Kurt Swan, Superman. I'm not great at artists flying towards us. Half of the page is literally like typewriter type with the rules of the the contest. Yeah. It is great because many people are familiar with this. You would cut up the letters page, which we're going to talk about a little bit, and they would have letters. You would have to spell out Superman or Kal-El or Clark and send it in. You were entered into the contest. You could enter as many times as you want. Your grand prize was two prizes. So you would be in the Superman movie, and we'll talk about where that cameo is. But you also got a trip to tour DC Comics. So that's super cool. So none of us won the main prize, (laughs) obviously. But I'm surprising everyone. We are going to go around the room and tell what we would have picked if we would have won the second prize. The second prize, you had a choice of The Secret Origins of DC Superheroes book. You had a choice of, and we'll need to talk about this, copies of the upcoming Warner paperback novels of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. We're going to put an asterisk and talk to Dan about that. One year subscription to The Amazing World of DC Comics or copies of... The all new Superman versus Wonder Woman, Superman versus Muhammad Ali, and the Legion of Superheroes Super Size comics. So, those are the treasuries, or tickets to Superman movie previews. So, before we talk about our choices, Dan, Paul, Tim, do you know what the copies of the upcoming Warner? paperback novels of Superman, Batman, and Woman Wonder- are they prose novels? That t- Superman one is Miracle Monday, right? Last Son of Krypton. Oh, so Last Son
3: of Krypton, right. That came before Miracle Monday, right.
1: I mean, I'm not sure where the planning was at this point, but because of the rights issues with Mario Puzo, they were not able to do any adaptation of the story. So they couldn't even do a novelization. So what they did do was they had Elliot S. Magan writing a Superman story that they dressed up with imagery from the movie, right. but it really it had nothing to do with that i think the idea was that they wanted to have a line of paperback novels that they were going to launch but it just never went anywhere the the batman one never happened the wonder woman one never happened superman got a second one with miracle monday as you mentioned but i think that's what this
2: is all in reference to and i apologize if i'm putting anyone everyone on the spot because i'm not sure where does this fall timeline with those Marvel paperbacks that had, like, the painted covers? Around the same time. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure which started
1: first or which came out first, but we're all ta- it's all late seven. Yeah, those Marvel novels were great. I still have them.
0: I thank God Dan is here to tell us these things. Oh, I know, I know.
1: I don't mean to be that guy. <laughs> no, we want that guy. You need that guy.
2: <laughs> I'll kick it off. I'm going for the secret origins of DC Superheroes book. I still don't have it. I want it.
3: Well, where do we pick the novels at the time? time if they had really actually come out but since I know they didn't come out I'd take the treasuries.
1: I mean actually if I had a choice between that or the or the Superman preview getting to see it early I would have chosen that probably but really in looking at it I think I probably would have gone with the Secret Origins book only because novels coming out I have to admit that it wouldn't have interested me as, enough as, as much as reading the comics. Now it would be different of course. The Amazing World of DC Comics was a great magazine but it didn't last much longer so that didn't, <laughs> that didn't pan out and at the time i didn't appreciate these particular treasuries but in retrospect they are valuable and wonderful and all those things so if i had a way back machine that's where i would I would end up but i think the 10 year old dan would have picked secret origins how about you tim well i'm sorry but the correct
0: answer is <laughs> the copies of the all-new superman wonder woman Muhammad Ali and Legion of Superheroes, those treasuries. I remember very clearly back in the day, seeing those full page ads where they had the covers Mm -hmm. of those treasuries Mm -hmm. on them. And I was like, oh my. (laughs) Because like that Superman Wonder Woman had that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover on it. And the Superman versus Muhammad Ali It's like, are you kidding me? He was such a pop culture figure at that time. He was the champion. Oh, it would have been a no brainer that that what I would have gotten. I, I'm being facetious. There's no wrong answer here, honestly. But also I have to say that the thing is that I know me in that the paperbacks, they would have been at the bottom of the list just because I would always
2: pick a comic over mm. a novel. I just would have. That's just how I would roll. Also, I think the novels would have been easy to get. I think they would be on bookstores, newsstands, yeah. everywhere. I think that would have been easy to get. Also, probably the thing that my father would have preferred that I <laughs> right. uh
3: All right. Let's move on to the next item.
2: So the next one is another Heroes World ad, and this is put a super friend on your chest. And we have Superman and Batman drawn probably by the Kirby school to the side. And then right in the middle are four t-shirts with Batman, Shazam, got the Marvel, one Wonder Woman and Superman bursting through his Superman symbol, but more interestingly, at the second half, we have beach towels and they are giant, thirty-two inches by sixty inches, one hundred percent cotton, and they are Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman and Robin. Yeah, those towels look cool. I didn't Not have no, any. None of those. The, the t-shirts I would have liked. I would have loved to have had the towels. Yeah, I didn't. I
1: didn't have any of these, but the Batman and Robin towel I think probably would have been my winner.
3: Next one, Sean, is the Bureau of, not missing, but found villains.
2: And it is The Outsider. And I can tell you, I appreciated these two pages because at this point, I had never heard of The Outsider. Mm-hmm. I had no idea who he was. This was all completely new to me. Certainly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm almost positive all of these panels are from the original comics that the mm-hmm. stories are from. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a fantastic job of letting us know who the outsider is and was and how he came to be none of these stories I had read before so I didn't know any of them since this like over the years I've read nearly all of them so that's cool you know piecemeal you put it together back in the day this was a great thing to have for readers
3: right on the following page uh another installment of the cover comedy capers which has 10 million and one laugh by the way I don't know if it's really 10 million and one (laughs) laugh More like a smile. And this one's more focused on Batgirl, except for one of them with Batman smacking the outsider. And then they give you one to make your own funny caption, which I don't know how you make that funny. It's just from Batgirl's first appearance, she's running towards us, the Batman and Robin behind her. Another one of those little
2: comedy caper books, which are cute, but when I was 10 years old, I would just swipe by it. And next is Robin's new look. And these are costume designs sent in by readers, sent in by Michael O. Celia. Tom Probosco, Craig Sarton, and Norm Brayfogel. So just like the letters page, if anyone is listening, we invite you on so you can talk about having your idea published on the page. I'm sure we'll go around and rate them like this is Fashion Police on E.
3: <laughs> it's pretty cool. This is a famous page, seeing his take on Robin, which got this kind of grimace with a pirate-looking cowl on i don't know what what do you call that kind of cow that doing brave robin has there it sort of looks That's like It's like, like a bandana like a pirate, Yeah, bandana bandana like a with, yeah, with the eye holes yeah. Tied in it Oh, it's
0: a
1: Zorro mask Without the
3: hat Zorro It looks like Zorro That's what it looks like That's good, Tim
1: I think he sent in the design And I think it was actually Drawn in-house Really? Yeah, they did it With a few of them As I did interview him Years ago And I seem to recall Him saying something like that. Yeah, that was my design But they actually Redrew it in-house
3: Because it is the most Professional-looking one Yeah, it is Because the other one I highly doubt were done by a professional. But Breyfogle, he was around hour eight. 12, 13 at the time? Right. He would
1: have been maybe a 13 or 14-year-old kid at this time.
3: Well, bat listeners, if anybody knows whether Norm Breyfogle actually drew that image, I always thought he did. I'm going on a search for that.
1: I'll also look because I, I, I might have something that I can find that I can send you also for the notes.
2: And what I'm about to say is supposed to reflect on me not the artistic ability of this person because I cannot draw a stick figure to save my life. So when I say this, believe me, this is against me, not the artist. One of them has musculature, but the way it's drawn, I thought it was either like, holes or like black spots on the <laughs> costume i
4: didn't
2: I, it was me i didn't understand that it was supposed to be musculature probably for like two or three years i thought that's horrible why are all those black spots <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay um popular segment is the batmail family we have two pages of letters almost with the superman movie contest at the bottom and as always beth montalone mike white tom mitchell Georgine Frena, Paul Blaze, Scott Gibson, Scott R. Taylor, and Lee Walkner. Any of you guys are listening, just let us know. We'd love to have you on the show. In Beth's letter at the beginning, I thought it was funny. She is saying something similar to what you and I say a lot, Sean, is that the plot has holes big enough to drive the bat cycle through. <laughs> but the characterization is great. And then the best nugget of the Batmale family, and Sean's point, and he knows what I'm gonna say: the wedding outfits, which we debated. Were they designed by Kurt Swan or Jim Aparo for the cover or what? Apparently neither. They were designed by E. Nelson Bridwell, which blew my mind, like the emoji with the brilliant blowing out. So that's in the answer to the letter to Tom Mitchell. Bob Rzakis says, as for the wedding outfits, they were designed and colored by none other than our associate editor, E. Nelson Bridwell. As we hum, here comes the Bridwell. Let's move on to the next letter. So those were my takeaways from the letter column. How about you guys? Anything Anything fun?
2: I like that Scott R. Taylor said, uh, talking about the Alfred and Commissioner Gordon team up, I began to worry that you guys would have them tracking criminals all about the script. <laughs> so Scott might be the only person <laughs> who did not want them to go Good on you, Scott. You got your wish. Uh, One last
3: ad the back cover of this. I just have to mention it's got the famous SeaWorld ad with Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin on. Water skis, and we've all seen the famous picture of them. The real-life show where all the heroes and in their costumes are making the giant pyramid. But this was on a real-life comic book, folks. And they're all so
2: happy. We're going to try to find the pictures and include them in the gallery. Because those costumes are fantastic. The costumes are really good, yeah. And they're uh, soaking wet. (laughs) As a kid, I would have done anything to go to Disney World, absolutely. But this is the one... Thing that would have gotten me to SeaWorld. I would have loved (laughs) to have seen this. Oh, you're not alone,
3: brother. All right. Let's move on to chapter four Inside, Outside, Melting Down the Town. So in chapter four, we start off with the outsider monologuing on top of the bridge after eliminating the TNT trio. He is doing the evil genius thing because he has transformed the entire New York skyline into candles. But Batgirl and Robin aren't dead. They show up to stop him, and the Outsider's attempt to use their utility belts against them again fails since the dynamite duo has discarded them. Robin decks him, and just as the Outsider is about to do something weird with the bridge, Man-Bat shows up. Amazingly, he is not dead either. He apparently used one of Aquaman's magic tridents to kill the yuturunku and then skins him, maybe? To disguise himself as the <laughs> yuturunku <laughs> He was the one to free Robin and Batgirl instead of eviscerating them. So Don Newton shines in a big fight scene with the Outsider, doing his best Green Goblin impression by throwing Gwen, uh, I mean Robin, off the bridge. (laughs) Kirk does a better job than Peter Parker, though, and actually rescues Dick. Meanwhile, Babs does her Robin impression by using acrobatics and puns to clobber the Outsider. Robin then shines the moonbeam flashlight onto the Outsider, and of course, it splits Alfred out of him. After his initial disorientation, Alfred takes great umbrage at the outsider having used his body like that. Alfred's left jab puts the outsider off balance, but his right cross coams him off the bridge. Kirk exclaims that the Big Apple is back to normal, so he's out of there and heads back to Francine. And that's it for the outsider. Finally though, in another patented Rosakis epilogue, Babs makes it home finally to her apartment in DC. She's about to get into a long bath When the doorbell rings, it's not the pizza guy. It's Batwoman, who then melts right in front of Babs' eyes. Continued next issue. What did you guys think? Tim, you want to go first? Sure, I can go first. This is a crazy ending.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry for for my hot takes being kind of crazy and wild out there, but this ending is just, what is is happening? What is going on? Uh, <laughs> the, the candles. So that's one thing is that he's powerful enough to grab the moon to turn New York City into burning candles and can't be two acrobats and a flying mat. It's one of those things. You just go with it's it's comics. Don't ask questions. It's comics. But the artwork is just Really great throughout it. I like the action in it. Like on page 26, Batgirl doing a backflip with the double kick. It's like, oh, that's really pretty yeah. sweet. Man Bat's Rescue of Robin. It's, I will forgive the comparisons to Gwen Stacy this time, but, <laughs> 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 but it's a very good, very good action sequence. And just the splitting of Alfred from the outsider, it's like ah, that's not necessarily a good thing going forward (laughs) because we don't see a body afterwards but you know the big thing i know this is what you're getting is that what the heck about kirk getting a jaguar skin to disguise himself (laughs) in for that previous chapter now the other thing about that is also the fact that in the jaguar skin the mouth of jaguar was opening and closing big time (laughs) in that part and look perfectly perfectly realistic in the art. I cannot even. Now, my own explanation is that perhaps there was already a handy-dandy jaguar skin there at the museum that he could pick from. And he didn't have to actually go to work on the man-shaped jaguar that was standing there beside him corpse of the Grand, uh, But also, Kurt's seen some things. So I'm not sure I want to go there any further than that. Kurt has seen some things. It's a wacky ending, but boy, it's an action-filled... I love the fights. I love the the resolution. I, I like getting Alfred in action.
3: Oh, the Alfred scene is great. Fantastic.
0: Now, of course, we're also short on mentioning the most important difference between the outsider and Alfred is Alfred has a mustache. And that... <laughs> Is how you know the outsider is truly evil because he got rid of the mustache.
1: But yeah, it's an amazing wrap up of the of the story. Amazing! I love that when Alfred gets into the act on page twenty eight and he's doing the like the gentleman's boxing style. <laughs> I love that. It's, I love that Alan Napier does that in the uh, first Batgirl episode. Oh in wow! The, the, the season ah, three premiere. Uh, yeah. But it's like this British gentleman thing. It's really kind of hysterical. It's not good for your wrist to to impact that way. (laughs) No, I'm sure not. Yeah. Well, it doesn't look like you hit him that hard because all he gets is a a tiny little (laughs) Pout out of the deal. One of the things I also really, really like, just the attention to detail that artists give us is if you look at one of the panels on page 29 and you see Alfred's laying in bed and we see his socks and he is wearing what are very clearly... Dress socks that are reinforced at the toe, mm-hmm. because of yeah. course that's exactly what <laughs> Alfred would be wearing. He didn't just draw socks; he made a point to draw them in a way that, like, yeah, that's that's what Alfred would be wearing. And I <laughs> and I just I love that tiny <laughs> good catch, bit of detail.
3: good call out.
1: I also have to kind of apologize to Don Newton a little bit because, and not to be too self referential, but just a couple of weeks ago, back at the end of November, I think, I did a uh, top thirteen backer artists sort of the silver and bronze age. And I had Don Newton on the list, and then I removed him from the list ah. just because he didn't really draw her that much. Mm-hmm. And then some of the others who made the list did. But anyway, the point being, once again, going through this entire story page by page has re- made me realize what a mistake I made, <laughs> because quality over quantity, Don Newton drew a great Batgirl. And you see a lot of that in that scene, like with her doing that back. Yes. Yeah, She's, Mm-hmm. Kicking the, the outsider in the face, and yeah, just great stuff.
2: Yeah, no surprise. I love this ending. I love the story. I think the outsider looks fantastic on page twenty-two. That little inset panel, I, I love that. The thing with man, Bat with the utu ruku, come oh,
4: on, they man, they say it
2: so well. <laughs> we just gotta take that snippet and just
0: paste it in whatever we needed.
2: i actually think it almost maybe kind of sort of would have worked if the outsider wasn't standing beside him with his hand on his shoulder if it would have been like across the room (laughs) and the door opens and he kind of comes up like i think that maybe would have worked but just just the fact that he's standing right beside him if you just think about it is that really the weirdest thing that happened in this issue (laughs) (laughs) there's plenty of weird stuff going on in this issue it's funny in my mind to this day i still reference the manly art of fisticuffs in my head I, 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 i love that turn of phrase on page 29 i absolutely love the sun coming up through the bridge i think that is beautiful yeah. yeah and one thing that is going to really surprise people in the epilogue so i'm 100 a gay man super proud of everything the hourglass figure of barbara gordon is like now i understand what an hourglass figure is because wow
0: oh you don't have to apologize for that these last two pages <laughs> these last two pages of the
1: artwork every shot of batgirl oh my god hence why i
3: changed my top
1: 13
3: (laughs) (laughs) can i ask one last question does anybody get the point of the candles i don't get the point of the candles
1: I mean, other than the fact that the Outsider could do grand things yeah. in their first big blowout between the characters, he turned Robin into a coffin, he made the Batmobile and the Batarangs all come, come alive.
3: alive. Yeah, all those yeah,
1: so I just think it's, I mean, he's a pretty theatrical dude, and I'm guessing that that's right. probably what it hmm. is. I mean, he was actually a villain who they made up as they went along because he wasn't originally supposed to be Alf. They had introduced the Outsider, had him for a few years, made him Alfred so they could bring Alfred back because of the TV show. So there was always, what exactly the outsider could do was never really clearly defined so i just
2: think it was just more about showing the horror and the power of what he could do because i am morally obligated to reference a musical in each episode in bed knobs and broomsticks there's a song called do it with a flare this is exactly him (laughs) do it with a flare all right in words of sean i'll allow it So Sean, you want to bring us home with our last segment? We are going to take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip-happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We talk about the most 1970s moment in the issue from any of the stories, which in this case, any of the segments, any of the chapters. Tim and Dan, what do you have for Gabriel's Horn for our big 3D TV jumbotron? Put it up on the board.
0: Go ahead, Tim. Oh, I have so many items listed that I'm afraid to list them all. I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder, so I'm not going to list them all. I'm just one of the things i'm definitely going to call out is no motorcycle helmets (laughs) no helmets on the bikes that's a big thing that's a big no-no and it's like oh in the 70s no problem such a big deal well i mean because it was such a big deal in captain america when they got him a helmet it's like they were finally like oh you need to be wearing a helmet cap you're a role model and I'll put up my number one pick is actually not in the story, but in the rules for the great superman contest. The type written rules for the contest, not lettered, yeah. typed. Mm. That don't have yep. that. Yeah. you you have a yeah, you can have a font for typing, That's but one. it's not gonna be there. So that just jumped on me. It's like that whole page just like. I had so many thoughts on that whole, on that whole ad, yep. <laughs> but the thing that's stuck in my craw is that typewritten most. And if you read it, it's like, oh my gosh, there's no limitations on race or sex
2: on the winners of this contest. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> there are no age or racial restrictions. Males and females are equally eligible to oh win. Oh
0: my God. That's a lot of 70s in that half of the page. And it's not even part of the
3: story. <laughs> Excellent. Well done, Tim. How about you, Dan? You got anything story-wise?
1: I have one in-story, one-out. Mm. Go for it. The in-story is page nine, the splash page where we were talking before about the television set. Yep. That is a 1970s. Yes, I have that Fact. I have that one. Mm-hmm. You've got the dials yep. on it and even the shape of the the actual, the cathode ray tube. Mm. But really the apartment in general, I mean, that's a shabby 1970s New York apartment. That's a very true to life. Actually, it's not all that different than what it is today. But the outside one is the inside cover which is the hostess ad, Twinkies and cupcakes. Not for the ad itself, it's the baseball card. Yeah, yeah. Reggie
3: Jackson, and, uh, Joe, uh, Morgan, yes. Jackson Joe Morgan, and
1: Jim Palmer. <laughs> and I, I was was and am such a huge baseball fan, then more than now, but those guys were huge. Oh, heck yeah. And I remember getting cards that I could cut out from them. I mean, I was a tops collector, but I had some of these and I remember looking at the boxes and looking underneath to see, all right, are any Yankees on here? Oh, Reggie, that'll do, you know. Thurman Munson would be better. Cool. But I'll take Reggie. <laughs> that sort of it. So that took me right back to the summer of seventy-seven. And weirdly, just in retrospect, the idea of the city actually burning as candles, unplanned, obviously. But this was also the summer of the Great Black. Ah, Miranda. yeah. In retrospect, you're looking at the summer of nineteen seventy-seven when this comic came out, and you look at this with the backdrop of New York having one of its weirdest strangest summers you had the blackout you had the son of sam you had the yankees you had the mayoral race all of which is in the wonderful book ladies and gentlemen the bronx is burning if you're a new yorker or have a familiarity or love that part of the country i look at this comic book and i feel like it's very much a part of its time just in the general sense of it because of all those things
3: cool I have a few, but I'm going to go with my two favorites. So the first one is on page nine also, where Kirk is complaining about not getting any money. And Francine says, oh, Kirk, you shouldn't talk like that. The city is in financial difficulties, which, of course, was part of all the 1970s in New York. Nice. All of that. And then in part three at the beginning, Gabriel's Horn is the newest discotheque in Farmingdale, Long Island, where the main floor is crowded with dancers doing the latest variation of...
4: The, the hustle. hustle. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had
3: that one. one. I had that <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that. You had to scour for that one because that's in a caption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. That's a good one. Those were my two favorites. So Sean, looks
2: like I knocked at least one off your list. How about you? Knocked one and half of one off of another. And it's funny because both of them are in literally the same panel. Before Francine is talking about the financial worries, yep. Kirk says, whoopee, that." And 50 cents will get me a ride on the yeah, subway. I got that one too. That's great. <laughs> Good job, man. Good job. And you actually said my other one, which is, of course, fittingly, Gabriel's horn. The fact that they call it a discotheque. Nice. Oh, yeah. Normally you would just say, oh, I'm going down mm-hmm. to the disco. I'm going to the disco." Yeah, the, the nice. discotheque.
0: Awesome. I had a couple others. Yeah, go ahead. Let's hear them Yeah, all. go, go, go. Yeah. Corded telephones. You guys got a lot of them, so it's great. The only other one I was going to say, which is just really because of nerdiness, There's no Titan's Tower in the river. (laughs) Amazing to me when I got there and it's like, oh my gosh, I actually do expect to see Titan's Tower in the river in this comic
3: book. Long live Gabriel's horn. (laughs) Uh, That's how you know it's the 70s though. Fair enough. That's great. Well, guys, I think that wraps it up for the issue. We would like to thank our special guests, Tim Price and Dan Greenfield for stopping by the reunion this month. Tim and Dan, would you like to remind folks where they can find you? Tim? Sure, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast and you know I love this show. You guys
0: have been doing such great work and it's been fun to read along with you and it's a hoot every time. So thanks for letting me come down and I think I've had a few too many pieces of fried chicken. So I'll have to wrap this up. Uh, (laughs) So you can find me on WON, the Write-On Network with our leader, AJ Wright. The shows that I'm especially on are the Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast and also the Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. You can find them both on the feed labeled The Huntress Podcast, and you can find us at www.thehuntresspodcast.com. I'm on Twitter at TimPrice17, and I'm also on Hive and Counter Social and Discord with the same names because apparently Twitter is turning into a building that has a candle burning at the top.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're assuming that Twitter's still gonna be here when when this actually
0: airs. I am not assuming anything. (laughs) (laughs) But also you can find the Outcasters feed. It's Twitter handle is BatOutcasters on Twitter. Awesome. And Dan?
1: 13th Dimension, the website I run. That's really where you can find what I do. I'm also very active on Facebook. Not active really on Twitter any longer. But you can follow us at Facebook, and we're also active in a lot of the different groups. And one thing I did want to add before I sign up, first off, I want to thank you. To be able to talk about this issue and to talk about it with a bunch of guys like you who really appreciate it and the level at which you appreciate it. I love the podcast, and, I, and I'm really proud to be on these uh, episodes. So thank you. One of the things I did want to add is while we were talking, I was able to find out the answer to the Bray Fogel Robin mystery. Oh, okay. I did remember correctly. I was looking at my email back and forth, but unfortunately, it's lost to the ages. But he did speak about it in another interview. This was in um, an interview that was cited on CBR as part of Brian Cronin's okay. comic book Legends, which is, of course, mm, wonderful. So this dates uh, back a number of years. And he's citing an interview by Mike O'Ryan. And he's asked about the Robin design. And I'll just read the quote. He says, Oh, the Robin drawing? And then he laughs. He says, God, I was 14. There was a Design Robins costume contest in Batman Family, so I did a really large drawing, 18 by 24 or so, and I penciled it and inked it. I was pretty good by the time I was 14. I colored it. But what they did apparently with a lot of the drawings, if not all of them, was they had some production artist redraw them if they didn't fit their parameters. Um. It was probably too large and it was in color. They didn't want to bother with a halftone shot for some amateur and the contest was printed pretty small anyway. When I saw it in print, I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, what did they do? They redrew it. I was quite a bit better at that point than the exhibits. I thought that there was some really good designs from some people that sent them in. I'd like to know how many of the other designs looked a lot better than they did in print too. I don't have it now. So I I could never prove that. I'll always just be asserting it for the rest of my life. I've lost so many of the originals over the years.
3: That's cool. Thank you, That's man. amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, Thank
1: so you. there you have it. Yeah, we now have that answered just in time for the end of the podcast. But
3: uh, there you have it. Well, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're
2: about to start part two, a re-examination
3: <laughs> of... <laughs> now, in real life, we're going to play a couple of podcast promos. I wonder which ones we'll play. And then when we return, we will list your... Listener, feedback.
2: The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders.
4: outsiders.
0: Covering Mike W. Barr's series into its third year, where change is in the air. A new member joins, an original member leaves, old and new threats, and the deadliest man alive. Oh, and more puns. The Outcasters is a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us under the Write-On Network. That's W-R-I-G-H-T on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehundresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at Bat Outcasters. Join the Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Yeah.
1: Comic Book Historians is an online comic fanzine which works to show you what happened back then and shed light on how comic books came to where they're at now. CBH gives that to you via various platforms with the CBH YouTube channel and the podcast. Make sure to search Comic Book Historians. You also get daily updates on
0: our Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter. The CBH website is the central hub to access
1: our various platforms, as well as read some of our latest research. The YouTube channel has over 50 episodes of comic historical content to reach a global audience of comic book history enthusiasts. And listen to our podcast for comic history discussions, interviews, and lessons. Globally connect to comic book history through CBH, an online fanzine.
2: Welcome back. Before we get started on your feedback, I just realized that I wrecked myself, and now I need to check myself so that I can correct myself. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned the Kirby school, which of course, I meant the Kubert school. But I can see where I made the mistake, because Kirby and Kubert, they're both video game stars, so no wonder I was mixed up. Early in the episode, I also said that I'd talk about the Superman movie contest cameo, and then I got so enraptured by my own voice that I forgot to actually talk about it. The winners of the contest were profiled in the amazing world of DC Comics number 16. And that's the issue that has the beautiful art of Marshall Rogers with all the Golden Age characters. Oh my God, it's beautiful. But the very last story in that issue, uh, page 46, is the Great Superman Movie Contest. Not only do they talk about the winners, but they really go in depth as far as like setting up the contest and everything involved in that. But the two contest winners were Ed Finnerin and Tim Hussey, and they both appear in the Smallville section. And in The Amazing World of DC Comics, there's a picture of them, so you can see them and try to match them up with the movie. Now, before we go on, I wanted to let you know that Paul isn't going to be able to join us for the feedback. Uh, he's not feeling well, so we're going to go on. Now, luckily, all of his comments he put in the script, so I will let you guys know everything he said. Okay, Now that that's settled, we can move on to your listener feedback for episode 12, Batgirl's brother, Robin's term paper, and a Jaguar... I'm sorry. I guess I need to talk to you guys about something like it's kind of hard to say but so i'm doing this alone because paul cousin paul he developed a case of swamp fever now i will say like the incubation period did last the entire seven days but he has succumbed to the case of the swamp fever hopefully he'll be okay i'm doing the feedback so he doesn't have to i'm going out on patrol so he doesn't have to and i did give him chinese oranges so i think probably by the next episode he'll be able to be back on the show so that's You know, I just wanted to address the elephant in the room and get it over with. Now that that's settled, we can move on to your listener feedback for episode 12, Batgirl's Brother, Robin's term paper, and a Jaguar in Central Park, with special bat guest Ward Hill Terry. First up, our bat buddy and future guest Martin Mainza says, Happy holidays, bat cousins. Enjoyed another wonderful show with yet another great guest. As for this issue, big love for the Jim Aparo cover. He was one of my favorite artists of the 70s as he could draw just about anyone. The Batgirl story intrigued me as I did not know of the existence of Tony Gordon until this issue. So glad we'd see more of him down the road. The Man Bat tale is very memorable thanks to the amazing art and a cool concept changing Kirk from one monster into another. I remember tracing that image of Man Bat from the splash page to color and hang from my bedroom wall during my middle school years. To trace them, I would get the clear plastic cover from my turntable and put the comic page open on it, then put regular white paper over that. I would put a lamp on the floor in my room so that the only light would shine up through the plastic so that I could see the art under my paper. Then it was a quick way to copy the art. I did the same for the Robin on his splash page. Irv Novik was another favorite artist of mine at the time. When one has poor drawing skills, you do what works. Winky face. Back then, I had no idea how those last two tales would tie together when issue number 13 rolled around. Boy, that was fun. But we'll talk about that more next month. Looking forward to 2023 and getting to talk to you guys about a future issue. Thanks a lot. We look forward to it too. Next up, Bucky749 pipes in. Another great set of adventures, old chums. This month, I brought Cousin Jeremy, Reese the Canine Speedster, Kai the Wonder Dog, and Yuki the Hound Dog Warrior. We brought meatloaf made from Mom's recipe. Jeremy is setting up the projector, and we are doing a Batman Family double feature, The Wild World of Batwoman, and The Return of the Caped Crusader. In the show notes, Paul said that he had never seen that Wild World of Batwoman movie. He had heard of it, so he looked it up, and apparently, after being sued for copyright infringement during the Batman 66 craze, The director re-released it under the title, She Was a Hippie Vampire. (laughs) Bat Cousin Jeff is up next. Wow, I think Terry and I are the same person from just slightly different universes. I was also a child of the 60s and ran home from school to watch George Reeves, after Dark Shadows, of course, if I arrived in time, and hurried my parents home from dinner to watch Adam West. I have a distinct memory of running into the living room and turning on the TV and barely enough time to watch Batman. I don't know the episode, but I remember Batgirl was in it. I have an early memory of a light blue felt hat and round plastic glasses that I used to play Clark Kent. I don't even think it was for Halloween. I have pictures to prove it. I wore out my Batman Viewmaster reel, which was the only way back then I could relive an episode, over and over again. On Saturdays, usually after a trip to the barber, I asked Dad if we could go get a comic book. There were tattered versions in the barbershop to tantalize me. Batman Family came later. I did have a few direct from the spinner rack at Circle K, or Phillip's Drug. As much as bats terrify me, Man-Bat is one of my favorite DC characters to this day. I wouldn't be surprised if this is due to one of his appearances in, or on the cover, of the book. I love that this reunion takes place more than once a year. I'm the quiet person sitting alone, uncomfortably talking to relatives I don't know, but I appreciate being invited. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jeff. Paul then adds, Well, we're glad to have you, Jeff. Next up, our bat fanatic from across the Atlantic and past guest Martin Gray pipes in. How wonderful to hear Ward Hill Terry on the show. And I'm looking forward to listening to the Christmas song from Don't Call Me Frank. Grr, how I hate wildst. I spend half my life taking that archaic nonsense word out of otherwise almost rereadable newspaper copy. Thank you for the spotlight on Jose Delbo. I had no idea he had done so much work. I remember that NFT business. Good on him for exploiting the short of brain. And well done for getting Rob on to tell the story of his unfortunate run-in with Mr. Delbo at the Kubert School. It sounds like Rob came up with a challenging composition idea, and he should have been given Mr. Delbo's blessing to try to make it work. If the four requested pictures were indeed spot illustrations meant to be in a text version of the Shane story, so long as one of them showed Shane properly, what's the problem with one being mysterious? Martin goes on to say, Excellent defense of Vince Coletta. I look forward to the responses on this very page. Okay, what did I think of the stories? Well, all praise to Bob Rozakis for coming up with three very different tales of the Bat Gang. Regarding the Batgirl story, Apologies if I missed you mentioning it, but I think you missed the secret guest stars this time. Babs pals Debbie and Judy, stars of old DC series A Date with Debbie and A Date with Judy. Okay, Debbie has dyed her hair, but those names can't be a coincidence. Paul says, wow, that was a great catch, Martin. I did not catch it. Very cool. I'm sure Bat Cousin Bob threw that there intentionally. Yeah, I didn't get that either, um... Martin was cool enough, he posted on our Twitter page, like, two covers, like, to point out. But yeah, I think, I think you're right, Martin. I, I didn't know that. Martin goes on to say, And how nice to see Tony Gordon, Bab's original non-insane brother. Now, I want to go and reread that Mighty Girl story in Adventure Comics. I must say, Tony's spy disguise rather ruined his looks. As for Robin's solo tale, Were you kidding when you asked who Christine Aradne was? Remember the Robin story in Batman Family number 6 and the small matter of an Agatha Christie type and a locked room mystery? That, Christine Aradine. Paul said, We do know, I thought it was something about that being in the same person. Sorry for the confusion, old chum. And this is me, Sean, saying, Yeah, I actually don't remember not remembering it because I think I would remember remembering it. Martin goes on to say, The Man Bat story was interesting for the visuals mainly. The most seventies thing this issue—the price, sixty cents for so much goodness. Martin's last comment is: Did the Gordon and Alfred logos ever appear again? Yeah, on their Twinkies strip. <laughs> Bat Fashion Police Commissioner Liz Ann Oswald says, "Impressive podcast, most impressive." Nope, sadly, I am not Hulahan. It just so happens that we both have a we both have great taste. Also, she said she liked Dick and Laurie together as a couple. I am clearly more of a fan of Barbara and Dick. Moving along, I can't really say anything about Laurie's outfit in this issue since you didn't put up an image. Oops, sorry Lizanne. But if she's dressing like the Joker's daughter, that's an improvement. Moving along, the cover to this issue looks great. Not surprising since there is a reason Jim Aparo was such a long-running artist on Batman Books. He made these characters look great. The flashlight bit is a bit funny. The costume this woman is wearing looks bizarre, but Jim Aparo makes it work. The Batgirl story is pretty cool. But yeah, it would have been nearly impossible for them to set this theft up. Not just for everything you pointed out, but the police would have caught him in seconds. Leaps in aviation had gone way beyond what this biplane was capable of, especially by the 70s. The police would have picked him up in minutes with just two helicopters. It was cool to see Barbara's brother in this comic before modern DC completely character assassinated him. Moving on to the Mambat story. This is clearly early in the artist's work. He was still pretty good at this point, but even though the turtleneck is kind of working for him, what is with that pinstripe jacket? Was he auditioning to be a game show host? I'm not even going to try to understand the science of a jaguar biting him and then a flashlight being flashed at him. The Robin story isn't that bad. The close-up works well enough, though I'm not sure this is really the image you'd want to put up to say, look at this great hero. And he shows his foot in the camera. Him saving the book bit is pretty cool. That's pretty much all I have to say about this issue. In the Twinkies ad, we see that Hal Jordan is half the man he used to be. Showing the old origins of Clayface was kind of cool. It is interesting saying how well Clayface is integrated into modern DC. The Spalding ad isn't that bad. I know nothing about sports, though even I remember Dr. J. Sorry, I have no idea who Rick Barry is. Though hey, Mad Magazine's own Jack Davis drawing it is kind of cool. Lizanne finishes up by providing a list of some Christmas songs she likes. Check out the website for her selections. And she also leaves some additional comments on more G.I. Joes, so check them out too. Next up, Network All-Star and fan of Robin's White very Christmas. Chris Franklin says, great to hear Terry on the show. That man creates a mean theme song, let me tell you. This may be the best cover shot of the Robin cycle. I love this vehicle. I so wanted a toy of it as a kid. I had a very similar Spider-Man cycle made by Buddy L with a built-in Spidey figure. I actually had two copies of this toy, so I removed the Spidey figure, took off the stickers as best I could, and plopped my superpowers Robin on it. Boom! Instant Robin cycle. Thankfully, Eagle Moss made a nice replica a few years back, complete with Dick Grayson's van in the background image. I do prefer it in all red, however. And Chris posted a cool pic of the Eagle Moss Robin cycle, so it's great to see. And then Chris goes on, Anyone think that Tony Gordon looks a lot like a young George Lucas? Marshall Rogers' were-jaguar is so gorgeously designed. I wanted him to become his own separate character when I first read the story in that beloved Batman Family Digest.
4: Yay!
2: Fun fact about the Sky Heroes. I haven't seen them in person, but if you look closely at the examples listed on eBay, you can see that the figural art is unmistakably by Gil Kane. Were the awesome logos for Gordon and Alfred ever reused? Not to my knowledge, which is a shame. Had they been given proper entries in the original, pre-crisis version of Who's Who, I bet someone would have dug these out and used them there. I know Alfred does get an entry, but to say how would spoil the contents of your next episode. I'm a Christmas music fanatic myself, and I've been digging into some new-to-me songs this year more. I did hear Kylie Minogue's version of The Waitress's Christmas wrapping on one of the Sirius XM channels last week. And of course, I thought of Sean. Oh, thank you, Chris. That warms my heart. Our Bat Pal, Matt Sorois, is next. Fun episodes, guys. I did have the Batman Sky Hero. It was made of very thin styrofoam, they did not last very long. I flew it once or twice before the wing tore. Now, the water rocket I bought at the Boston Museum of Science where it's entirely possible that I saw Ward Hill Terry demonstrate the lightning show, was made of much better materials. I only launched it once because it landed on my neighbor's roof. Another Matt, Bat Cousin Matthew Davis, stops by the Wayne Family Gardens to proclaim, Festivus Greetings, Bat Cousins! I enjoyed reading these stories as a kid, but rereading them now has really made me appreciate them. And it's also made me realize how underrated of a writer Bob Rozakis is. One issue might have three solo stories, like this one, another featured a Batgirl-Robin team-up, and then there's the next issue where the whole Batman family comes together, and there's a subtle interconnectivity with all of them, definitely entertaining and fun. These days, too many people would be trying to fill in the continuity with Tony, well, he must have gone down before Bruce Wayne became Batman. Otherwise, he would have investigated and rescued him. Yeah, but don't you think Batman didn't know what really happened anyway? Oh, crap. I'm doing it, aren't I?
4: Ugh.
2: Simpler times. This issue featured a nice set of artists, didn't it? Jose Delbo seems best known for female heroes, Batgirl here, and in his long run in Wonder Woman. Maybe not quite as realistic as Neil Adams, but definitely one of the better artists at DC in the 70s. And Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin's classic run on Detective Comics remains a favorite of mine. Irv Novick was always a favorite at the time. His work looked better when paired with Frank McLaughlin, as opposed to Vince Coletta. No, I'm not going to open that debate. I don't want anyone throwing Uncle Johnny's eternal holiday fruitcake at me. And then he posts a link to Johnny Carson's bit where Uncle Johnny's fruitcake destroys his desk. We agree. We don't want that kind of fruitcake at the reunion. Oddly and frustrating enough, that world's finest with Tony Gordon's first appearance is not on the DC Universe site. And it doesn't look like the Adventure Comics appearance of Lil Babs is there either. This is Sean now speaking. Yeah, I agree. Um I love the DC Universe Infinite app. I use it all the time. But yeah, there's a lot of big omissions there, um especially with Adventure Comics. There's a there's a huge chunk Missing, and World's Finest as well. Okay, back to the letter. The most 70s thing in this issue? At first I was thinking how nicely dressed Barbara and her friends were when visiting the Smithsonian. Then again, these are two friends visiting a third friend who is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, so the choice of clothing is understandable. Then I noticed the Chinese soldiers interrogating Tony. Yeah, that might have been downright progressive for the time, especially when you think of Asian depictions 35 years before this, but it definitely does date the story. Wishing everyone a happy holiday. Thanks a lot. Now we're going to go on to Network All-Star and co-founder Rob Kelly. Kudos to Kelly. Oh, that might not work. Had to pipe in to set us straight. Hey guys, great show. Love hearing Terry on the network. These Jim Aparo covers are just so good lately. DC needs to put out a hardcover the DC covers of Jim Aparo book. I'd gladly fork over $100, 42% off at in stock trades for it. Paul and I agree we would too. And Rob says, not to be that guy, but since you mentioned it, it was I, Rob Kelly, who came up with the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name thing, over on my late lamented Aquaman Shrine blog of which Sean was a member of Foam. When I started doing the Fire & Water podcast, I kept the gag going, and now it's become the closest I'll ever get to creating a meme. P.S. Thanks to Terry for backing me up regarding Jose Delbo's inkers. When I was a kid, I had no conception of what inkers even did and what effect they had on the pencil art. So if I saw art I didn't like, I would assign all the blame to whoever was listed first. Only over time did I notice, hey, I like this guy when he's inked by that guy, but not by that other guy. For whatever reason, Delbo kept getting paired with inkers who didn't do him any favors. That said, I stand by my story from when he was my instructor at JKS. I was right, damn it. Future guest, our Bat's second cousin, thrice removed, Brett Michael Young, says, Happy holidays, Bat family. Sorry I'm late. I brought eggnog with Baileys, dark rum, whiskey, a touch of cinnamon, and topped it with nutmeg. I also brought candy canes so that the parents can lose their minds trying to remove the individual wrapping without breaking the candy cane into a thousand pieces. Back cousin Ward Hill Terry is a great guest. It's also nice getting a cameo from all-star Rob Kelly. Thanks for bringing a cooler of Slurpees, Rob. I'm trying to decide between the cherry ones at the top of the cooler that are pure liquid after 10 minutes Or the Coke Slurpees at the bottom of the ice that are frozen solid. Refreshing. By the way, I'm sure Jose Delbo is a nice enough fellow, but you have every right to hate his guts. Also, I always thought that the movie slash book was called Shame, not Shane. Who names a cowboy Shane? It's funny. This is Sean. This is funny. He talks about that because watching Batman 66 when I was a kid and they have like the cowboy, I think Cliff Robertson as shame and it's a takeoff of Shane, I never understood that. I never got that it was like a movie reference. And technically, I still have never seen the movie Shane, but I do know it is a takeoff, a parody of that. Okay, back to the letter. The Batgirl story was okay. Nice to see Babs has a brother who is not a serial killer. Although, trying to stay unseen by his family, by being a highly visible lecturer at the Smithsonian Museum, a half a mile from where his sister works, isn't what I'd call primo 007 instincts. I'd say the most 70s moment of the story is that apparently back then, nobody actually worked at the Smithsonian. You could just walk around and take stuff. Man-bat art continues to impress. I agree with Sean that the art is really starting to outshine the Robin and Batgirl stories. I wonder if the inker has anything to do with it. Bat cousin Ward Hill Terry provides a very intelligent, thoughtful, and generous defense of Vince Coletta. My only counterpoint would be, Vince Coletta is not very good. I remember all of these ads. The Superman flyer art always threw me off because the angles don't line up. The art on the far wing would have to be stretched out to be viewed at this angle. And thank you for posting the Spalding ad. Julius Irving is my all-time favorite basketball player. Nobody wants to see you shooting jumpers, Rick Barry, while the doctor is doing windmill dunks from the foul line go Sixers. And then in the show notes, Paul says, me to Brett, I grew up in the we O U one era of Sixers basketball and did attend a playoff game the year they won the title. So this brought back memories for me. I didn't understand any of those sports references that I said, but Brett goes on to say, The Robin story was a bit silly, but I love talking motorcycles, especially when they show up at your apartment or dorm. Robin's cycle climbs the stairs and shows up at his dorm room door, and no fellow student is the wiser. Babs and Dick seem really eager to follow orders from their modes of transportation. If Dick was thinking faster, he could have said, yeah, Babs, I guess we better do what the motorcycles say. In fact, mine is now telling you that you should drive your cycle over to my dorm, dressed as Wonder Woman, and tie me up with your bat rope. Weird, huh? But we better do what it says, right? Well, gotta go. Looks like Grand Aunt Great Aunt Louise has been hitting the eggnog hard and has passed out in the nativity scene. Happy holidays, guys. Thanks, Brett, and same to you and all of our bat cousins. Now we're gonna take a turn and look at our social media. And we're gonna cover Facebook and Twitter, and we're gonna go over likes and retweets and conversations. We're gonna start with Facebook. Uh, we got Facebook's likes and messages and all of that jazz from Harold Wallen, Michael Best, Brett Young, Eddie Baris, Don Lindbergh, Doug Game Master, Paul Wildenberger, Mike Thomas, Brian Linton, James Williams, Mike Jameson. Clinton Robinson, and the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The other really nice thing on Facebook is that Mike Thomas uh, responded to our Facebook post, and he said that uh, the cover of number 12 is such an awesome cover. I'm pretty sure it's the first comic book I ever bought on my own. Great podcast as usual, gentlemen. Thanks a lot. We appreciate that. Now we're going to flip over to Twitter. Where we have likes, comments, replies, and all of that kind of stuff from Ciscoid, Firestorm Fan, Fire and Water Network, Irredeemable Shag, Tim Price, The Pod Crasher, Coffee and Comics, Between the Pages Blog, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Jeff Owens, Diecast Movie Podcast, Mike Deans, Michael Thomas, John Malarkey, Willie Yarborough, Liz Ann Oswald. Martin Gray. The Bat Pod. Justin Steiner, Dave's Comic Heroes blog. Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. And finally, stick with me, people. Anthony, I was c z y s z y n. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but I appreciate you being on Twitter for me. (laughs) And on Twitter, Martin Menza said, Sean, did I hear during this episode that you work for a library? Me too, Bat Cousin. I have been an adult services librarian for a public library for over five years now. That is fantastic. Uh, In December, I just had my five-year mark at working at the library. Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, I'll take this opportunity to encourage everyone to check out their local library. They really are great and I can't speak for every library system, but um, definitely check it out. I, I do think that probably every library system certainly does have graphic novels now, uh, which is fantastic. and if your local branch doesn't, you may be able to order them in from another of their branches or an interlibrary loan. so that's great. Uh, we also have streaming services for free. My li- library has hoopla and canopy. And the great thing is Hoopla has graphic novels on there that you can rent for free. So that's wonderful. Getting back to uh, the Twitter mentions, Rodney Trainum said he is finally getting into this podcast queue. This issue was the second Batman family that I ever got. I vaguely remember the Man-Bat story from the Batman Family Digest. Yay! I had a few years prior. Uh, he loved Marshall Rogers' art in that story. Amen, brother. Uh, The Robin story led into one of his favorite issues of Batman Family. Me too, Rodney, me too. Some more Twitter goodness. Uh, Martin Gray posted that he got the Batman Silver Age Omnibus Volume 1. And he pointed out that front and center on that beautiful, beautiful cover is Batwoman. And yes, I can't help but think that this podcast was entirely responsible for that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think someone got that as a Christmas present. So that's super cool. The last thing in terms of social media, two people named Shag and Rob Kelly got together in Florida. And of course, what do we do? We go to comic book shops and there they saw an issue of Batman Family Number Two and snapped a selfie with the five of them. Shag rob batman robin and batgirl martin gray chimed in and said i hope this means we'll get the network's original dynamite duo on batman family reunion soon to which uh someone who runs our twitter account said we've reserved the odd man story just for them (laughs) uh we thank everyone for uh their interactions on twitter and facebook it's great i love it uh keep it coming now Before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, Running the Fire and Water podcast network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a Patreon. We're not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount that you can give helps defray the cost. And I promise that we will not use those funds to buy a silver Trident. To find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts And thanks. And that's going to do it for the feedback section and for episode 13. Let me tell you, I cannot wait until Paul can do this with me again. Whew. Special thanks to both of our guests this month, Tim Price and Dan Greenfield. We loved having them on the show. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, uh, let us know. Reach out to us. Uh, We still have open slots all the way down the line. For the rest of Batman family and then running into Detective Comics. Thanks again for listening and for your comments. And we hope that you will join us next month when Batwoman returns. Yay. And we find out if old superheroines never die, they just fade away. Happy New Year, everybody.